How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion! It's a lion! It's a lion! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. I know you feel that way, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, you know what? What is the standard definition of who and what is a film historian? And I looked it up. And I don't I don't think you would be out of line to say film history. Consider myself a film history enthusiast, but I feel like I I mean, because what I'm building on other people's work, and that's why I always try to credit people when I can. Well, that's you know part, I mean? that's part of is it. it. That's, that a, that's actually research? part of it. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's, yeah. It's I mean, I guess unless I'm unless you're interviewing the people directly. Right. And you're getting all of your info from, yeah, like digging into the source itself. But I mean, yeah. generally, most things on the Internet are people building off of other people's stuff. So, yeah, yeah I, I guess so. all that all that to say, I I'm think parsing a, through other people's work and then rearranging it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. A, I think you absolutely could refer to yourself as a film historian. B, I think it would actually I mean, like, look, we we've restructured the intro of this show to make it better to add some more legitimacy i i think that would be right in line with that i Personal just hate opinion. it because i'm jealous that you didn't think that i get to be a film historian too no <laughs> well because i think the i think one of our strengths is the diversity between the three of us yeah you gave yourself writer comedian justin film historian and, and gary from look at look again it does say from the national wrestling alliance as uh -huh. if you are a professional wrestler but but again it's you know in looking at the introduction i was you know other than we are three guys that tell you stuff about movies like why are our why are our opinions better than just the three average guys like what what kind of perspective are we bringing to this information mm. and I, you know gary's i mean you know Bill gary's researchers the, gary's got the music theater background but i was like but it would be kind of cool to say like we've got film historian we've got somebody from the national wrestling we've got a writer comedian like we offer these unique perspectives on this history and i, I again just trying to no, I get it. Make it make it a smoother thing. Try it well, on once. Well, assuming that people, like it. if the people can hear this, this is the bullshit we have to deal with every day. Before we record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like that's patting myself on the back too much. I don't know. Maybe that's just me having a hard time. Uh, I get it. I get it. There, I try because I mean, look, writer comedian. It's been easily a year and a half since I've been on stage regularly, and I even longer since i wrote something bro i get it i don't even watch these movies <laughs> uh, I, I suffer really i suffer really bad from imposter syndrome all the time oh me too yeah so big time. but Dang. i get like i think part of I, I think part of that is just kind of like 
No, that no, this is this is the position I've taken. Yeah. And so so I mean, you know, for what for what it's worth, I would never balk at you saying I'm film historian Justin Bishop. I would be like, yeah, that absolutely tracks. You guys let Justin Bishop know if he should start calling himself film historian. <laughs> Justin tweet, tweet us at cinema underscore shock. I'd say Justin is a film historian. Don't tweet at um, me directly, please. Because <laughs> he doesn't get on Twitter. You, you know, I do. I, I mean, since I Elon do, threatened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things over on Computer Resume that has never been addressed is anytime I bring up any sort of touchy subject or anything. I would say, look, if you disagree with me, please feel free to send all your hate mail to at Justin underscore fish. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I keep waiting for Justin to say something about it. That is so a I'm dangerous game. <laughs> I haven't received Todd, any yet. So. Todd, Todd be problematic sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm trying to rein it in, Phyllis. I'm trying to rein so, it in. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll tell you another thing. You know, Andrew know. Dice Clay. I mean, come on. Yeah, there you uh, go. You know. <laughs> Uh, crime wave exists and uh we've seen it yeah well you want to start the podcast yeah Yeah, i was that was my start to the podcast that's Uh, well hello there it is (laughs) welcome to cinema shock the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films you want to know who we are i'll tell you who we are we do all the research so you don't have to we're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them i'm one of your hosts from the national wrestling alliance (laughs) I'm, I'm not ever saying that again. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I am your other host, alleged film historian, Justin Bishop. I'll take it. I'll take it. And I am writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome to our second episode of our look at the always interesting career of Mr. Sam Raimi titled Sam Raimi, the entertainer. And that's worth at least $36. It's how much you paid for the DVD. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after the success of The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi got a little bit of attention from Hollywood. I mean, that movie made a lot of money, which led to his first uh, quote unquote studio film. Uh, But it was not one that very many people remember if they ever even knew about its existence at all. The film was a collaboration between Raimi and future Academy Award winners, the Coen brothers, very early on in their careers. And it's a film that Sam Raimi has disowned and one whose existence the Coens actively ignore. It was one, it's what one might consider a sophomore slump for both Raimi and the Coens, who were also just coming off their own well-received debut film, Blood Simple. The film was known by several titles during its tumultuous production and leading up to its release, but it was eventually dumped into theaters with the boring and generic title of Crime Wave. Detroit, land of opportunity. Would you like to have some lunch, some evening? No, really. I haven't seen you here before. Where people are friendly. I like that, that woman. You're cute. Love is everywhere. And everyone seems to be frying, flying, and dying. Crime wave. A fiendish plan to turn citizens into shock absorbers. And only one man is bold enough to try and stop it. Can Vic save Nancy? Or anyone? You're under citizen's arrest, fella! You've done some bad things, and I'm gonna deal out some swift justice! Crime Wave, the comedy that gets down to nuts. Mrs. Tran, you better get back in your apartment. There are a couple of maniacs running around the building. And bolts. Some night, huh? It couldn't possibly have been worse. 
as we do every week, we're about to get into the nitty gritty of this silly talkie. So like Walker telling Haley Joel Osment that he has AIDS, spoilers ahead. And how you doing, little partner? Fine. And it's little visitor now. <laughs> Adewayoli is how you say it in Cherokee. Oh, well, pardon my French, but uh, I'll be damned. <laughs> Walker told me I have AIDS. <laughs> you saying that he should not have told Haley Joel that? Well, Just I, let it be it's a, 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 it's a let it be a surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what right does Walker Texas Ranger have to tell Haley Joel Osment? Somebody's got to tell him. Yeah, it's gonna come up. <laughs> he's gonna figure. Out. Somebody should tell him, but that's not Walker's job. He's gonna figure out that something's a bit off. Yeah, it's really weird that Walker is going to come back up later in this. Episode. I, I, that's that's Todd foreshadowing. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, okay. that's Todd. That's writer comedian yeah. Todd Davis. That's where the writer part comes in. He's <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, despite the success of The Evil Dead, that film star Bruce Campbell didn't have Hollywood trying to knock down his door, as you think he they might. I mean, he deserves it, right? Absolutely. We all love Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Uh, so he he went to a few auditions after Evil Dead came out without a whole lot of luck until he finally landed a gig on a soap opera called Generations, which aired from 1982 all the way until 1983. Uh, <laughs> this was Bruce Campbell's first paying job as an actor. It, it also started on December 31st. <laughs> <laughs> I actually tried to find like how many episodes he was in. And I couldn't find it. Did either of you stumble across that in your, in your research? I, I mean, I looked it up on IMDB, but I don't recall the number of episodes. I'm sure it says it on there, but uh, cause it usually will on IMDB, but I did not look. Yeah. But can you picture him in a soap opera? Kind of. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I can't, I yeah. can't picture his, I don't know, his attitude going along with the soap opera. I don't know. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, the normal smarmy Bruce that we all know and love, but he is, after all, an actor. And I do, I do think there's something about his look and that like cheesiness of Bruce Campbell that kind of honestly kind of fits in a soap opera, to be honest. Yeah. I think if you imagine him doing a dramatic turn and like that, that, that organ like hitting that note like that like you can totally see bruce campbell yeah something like yeah that. i think so yeah all right like, fine. I'm, I'm picturing him more in like a telenovela like oh a Spanish yes <laughs> i was gonna <laughs> say like one of the indian soap operas have you seen no that, i'm thinking like, like a like the mexican ones you know well, well yeah i know that but i'm saying like the indian ones have you seen that one clip on the internet going around where the lady gets like hung by the curtain that's hanging like, yes, I have. Seen that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that job for Bruce did not last for very long, but it benefited him in a couple of ways. One, he learned how to memorize lines very quickly, mm. and he met an actress named Christine DeVoe, who would become his first wife. Uh, by the time the two were married, generations had been canceled. However, the show's legacy did live on a little bit. Uh, there's a scene in Fargo, Coen Brothers, where Peter Stormare's character is in his cabin watching TV. If you've seen Fargo, I'm sure you remember this scene. The show he's watching is Generations. And the scene actually shows Bruce Campbell with his then girlfriend slash future ex-wife having an argument on screen, actually. So, like, didn't Bruce even get a, uh, a, a credit for appearing in Fargo? He may have. Is it in the is it in the credits or is it? So. Yeah, I love that. I, I hope he got. I hope he still gets residuals from it. Honestly, oh, that'd be awesome. 
Well, after that series ended, he still struggled to find work, eventually landing his first official job as a member of the Screen Actors Guild in a local Chrysler commercial. This is Detroit, after all. Mm. Uh, But still, that SAG card made it official. After a no-budget horror film, a canceled soap opera, and a car commercial, Bruce Campbell was a professional actor. That was his job now. Uh, Now, though, it was time to get another movie made. Luckily, his buddy Sam already had something in the works. But before we get into the filming of that, we're going to rewind a little bit. So if if you listen to our episode of The Evil Dead, uh, which I'm, I assume if you're listening to Crime Wave, then you definitely listen to The Evil Dead. Because if you're listening to this movie, <laughs> then you're a dedicated Sam Raimi fan or a dedicated Cinema Shock fan. So surely you've listened to The Evil Dead episode. Maybe you're listening uh, to this instead of watching Crime Wave. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you may remember a little detail we mentioned when discussing that film's post-production process. Uh, and that was that the film's editor, Edna Paul, had a young assistant working with her by the name of Joel Cohen. Edna told Raimi, you got to read the Cohen boys' scripts. They're such good writers. And Raimi was a little bit reluctant. Uh, Cohen's brother, Ethan, was a a statistical accountant at Macy's department store at the time. So no, Mm. he wasn't exactly anywhere near being like a working screenwriter. But Raimi liked Joel because they'd become friends during that editing process. So he read the script and he was impressed with the quality of the writing. Well, as I mentioned, Cohen and Raimi had struck up a friendship during that editing process. And when it came time for Joel and Ethan to try to find financing for their directorial debut, Blood Simple, Raimi suggested that they shoot a short proof of concept first to impress potential investors, just like Raimi had done with Within the Woods. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it worked for them, so why not? And so that's what the Cohen brothers did. But Raimi did more than just give the Coens a good piece of advice. Uh, he and Bruce Campbell actually helped shoot that short film. And then when the film was completed, and the, the final film, Blood Simple, and the Coens were looking for distribution, they, along with Francis McDormand, uh, who's the star of Blood Simple, they crashed at Raimi's Los Angeles apartment, along with McDormand's roommate, a young actress named Holly Hunter. Then in the early 1980s, Raimi and the Coens collaborated on a couple of scripts together. They liked working together, so they decided we're going to write something together. One of those was The Hudsucker Proxy, which would end up being directed by the Coens years later and released in 1994. The other was on a script that Raimi had been working on by himself for a while called Relentless. He had a good concept, but in his own words, uh, quote, the script was no good. So he asked the Coens to kind of help him work on it. And Relentless later named the XYZ murders from a suggestion by Irving Shapiro. Uh, we talked about him last week. Uh, that was a big change of pace for both the Coens and and for Raimi himself, uh, as was the Hudsucker proxy, which uh, if you have if you've seen that, you'll you'll understand. But the the Coens' first film, Blood Simple, it was a modern film noir. It's a dark and grisly tale of murder and infidelity. So they were coming off of that film. Raimi's coming off the gory evil dead. And then they start working together on this sort of zany slapstick comedy, a film that Raimi described as a send-up of film noir with a touch of comic book bedlam. That Relentless movie is interesting because I remember bringing that up in the Evil Dead thing, that that, that was like one of the scripts they had when they were going through stuff. And I can't, I think in the at the time I was listening to the commentary and Bruce or Scott Spiegel or something called it a confrontation between a ball wrecker and a bulldozer. Remember me saying that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what was that a joke then? Cause it doesn't or sound a like metaphor or a metaphor, I guess. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't get it at the time, but anyway, yeah, I just uh, wanted to say, I, I know relentless was, you know, one of the 
the things they had come up with. But if you go back and listen to that episode, you, you can hear talking about how like uh, Rob Tapp- Tappert had said that, you know, that they, they had been thinking through things and realized that horror was the way to go uh, yeah. because it was cheaper and everything. Uh, Bruce Campbell and uh, a couple of things I was reading explains that they all love comedy. And of course, when they were making their first film comedy, you know, this comedy was on the table, but they had to play it smart. Comedy's harder. Uh, you, you generally need name actors or talented comedians to pull it off. Mm-hmm. And to to quote Bruce directly, he said, we felt pressure to succeed. So we went with Evil Dead instead. Now we wanted to make a movie more based around what our real sensibilities were. So we came up with Crime Wave. And he talks about how, they, they of course, they went, they wanted to go completely different, like uh, zero blood. He was talking about even if you ought to, you know, even the guy gets a fork in the freaking nose and there's no blood it's, it's just, just like four dots on yeah, dots. Nose. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a musical number wacky fun adventure stuff that goes horribly wrong it was like we were trying to go completely away from horror yeah aside from some of the stylistic choices this could not be further away from the evil dead oh for sure yeah well coming off the success of the evil dead made securing financing for this film pretty easy uh, avco embassy who'd recently found success with john carpenter's the fog and escape from new york signed on for those duties uh, Avco Embassy had found success in the low-budget genre fair, yielding pretty good box office, and the XYZ Murders was given a modest budget of $2.5 million, which you know was still a major step up from what Raimi had made The Evil Dead for, which I think was a hundred grand or something like that, not or counting marketing and all that. Was, was found in his couch cushions, basically. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> a larger budget was the one big plus that came from working with a studio. But on The Evil Dead, even though they hadn't made a dime off of it, Ramey Campbell and everyone, the the Michigan Mafia, had complete creative control, something they definitely would not have with Crime Wave. Uh, And this would actually be the gang's first big lesson on working within the Hollywood system. Yeah, when The uh, Evil Dead was at the uh, Stigis Film Festival in Germany, Irvin Shapiro uh, introduced the guys to Edward R. Pressman. Uh, who was a producer, he was working on a bunch of stuff. I think he was there, like his wife had done something with Corman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and that's why he was there. He was a fan of, uh, as he puts it, like auteur filmmakers. He'd worked with uh, like Terrence Malick on Badlands, which is oddly a movie that I had just watched this week. And Conan the Barbarian, Das Boot. What and- led you to watch Badlands this week? Uh, for the Film Trace podcast. I was a guest on the Film Trace oh, podcast. Oh, I thought y'all were doing Harold and Maude. We did both. Oh, so, oh wow. wow. Yeah. You've had a prestigious week. We have. Yeah. <laughs> this is why when we were talking before recording, I was like, I felt like Halloween this weekend was the first time I watched something I just wanted to watch. Like I've been <laughs> watching stuff all week long that is just for something else. Wow. So anyway, yeah, watch Badlands with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. Anyway, uh, that guy had done that Conan the Barbarian Das Boot. Uh Preston was in he was he was into this script when they talked to him about it later. So, you know, schmoozing helped out, I guess. And uh he took it to Embassy, who agreed to finance and distribute it. Uh and part of the deal was they were talking about was uh, in return for final cut of the movie, they would do all this, which actually wasn't apparently at the time a normal request uh all the time from studios uh and indie film because indie filmmakers would normally like shut that down because they want creative control over everything that they of course, do. Yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Ramey bit the bullet here. Uh, even uh, Edward Pressman says nobody was ready though for the adventure that was going to cause later <laughs> down the line. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the first of many clashes with the studio came in casting the film's lead role. It was always kind of assumed that Campbell would play the film's hero, but Avco Embassy didn't see it that way. And they made Campbell film a screen test after which they came to a verdict. And that verdict was 
Campbell was definitely not going to be the star of this film. Uh, the, he And he was kind of taken aback by having to do that because he had never had to, he didn't have to audition for the Evil Dead. So to make up for it, Raimi beefed up the role of Ronaldo, the heel, giving Campbell more screen time. Uh, Campbell would also end up with a co-producer credit on the film alongside Rob Tapert, Irvin Shapiro, uh, and the previously mentioned Edward R. Pressman. Yeah, uh, one thing uh, for longtime uh, Cinema Shock listeners uh, about Pressman, he actually produced Phantom of the Paradise. Ah. So, uh, well, that wasn't even a Cinema Shock show. That's an old school. I know. Yeah, that's why I say long time listeners. (laughs) Yeah, you can't find (laughs) that episode anymore. (laughs) Nope, nope. It's it's lost (laughs) lost in the ether. But one day it'll it'll be on a Patreon or something. One day I've still got that. Yeah, I remember listening to that episode. It was a good episode. I I love that movie. One it's day, movie. one day we'll do a uh, a Brian De Palma series. I, I and I can't wait. Nice. <laughs> but Campbell, Bruce Campbell, you see, he wasn't Hollywood enough for the movie. Afco Embassy wanted a more well known name in the lead role, so they started auditioning big names like um, Steve Gutenberg. You know, the big stars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Steve Gutenberg was hot at this time. No, he, this was like pre three men and a baby. Oh, and pre was this pre police, police academy? academy? I think it I was. Mm. I think this was a couple years before police academy and I short mean, circuit. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess he was known, but it's not like he was a, a huge star. You know who he is right now. You know who he is in 2022. Yeah, well, listen, that's, you know, not everyone does. though. We do. We're old. (laughs) Well, the role would eventually go to one of the biggest names in Hollywood. Uh, Oh, wait, no. Actually, it went to a theater, a New York theater actor named Reed Bernie, who only had two movies under his belt at this point. So they're going for a big name. They get a guy who up until this movie, I had never heard of. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, it's there's a funny story, but actually, before before I say that, uh, that the thing with Bruce is, is like everywhere you look at stuff about this movie, you can tell this one he's he's always diplomatic about how he talks about everything, and he takes it as a big lesson. But and we'll talk more about that. But it hurt his feelings, I think. This whole mm-hmm. thing, this was like a yeah. slap for him. Like this yeah. was his first big disappointment. Like he talks about going in there and being like, "I'm screen testing for my movie. I'm a producer." On this right, movie. I'm right. part of this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was like, that was my first indication that we're not in Kansas anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, they just shot us down on like the thing that's expected. Like it was like, yeah, Bruce, you were your guy in Evil Dead. You're the guy in this one. That's just what's happening. Yeah. And uh, the studio no, said, nope. Yeah. And then they just slapped him down. One of my favorite stories, though, is uh, from Reed Bernie, who I tried to look this up and find out who it was, but he claims that he was not the actor that was hired for this to initially replace Bruce Campbell. And he says that there was another guy and the guy was celebrating and took a glass of or a bottle of champagne over to the casting director's house after he got the part and uh, they were going to hang out. And the casting director, she was having a huge fight with her boyfriend. And then he showed up at the house and the boyfriend got mad and punched the guy in the face and Reed Bernie wouldn't say who it was but punched the guy in the face and it broke his cheek and, and so <laughs> Reed Bernie was like just got the call and said we need you to go to Michigan and like a, a tomorrow to audit, like read for this role and so he had to like immediately show up he read and Sam's like fine you're it and then he went back to LA got his stuff and flew back to 
Detroit, but like it was all like last minute for him. He said they started like three days after he got the part. Wow, there was Fuck another guy. Here. Who do you <laughs> think it was? I don't know. I was trying to figure it out. I really tried looking. Mm, Tom Cruise. It was probably Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but the casting director's boyfriend apparently punched some dude in the face and broke wow. his cheek. Well, there's there's got to be a way to like look up, uh, you know, if it was maybe if that particular casting director had like a go to stable of these uh, that's still tough. i don't know we might just have to ask sam raimi one day if we ever get to talk to him of all if you ever get to meet sam raimi of all the questions you could ask him, <laughs> <laughs> if you're ever at a q a with him uh let's th- make sure that's one of the questions and let us know wow. <laughs> yeah and if anybody is doubting me here that is on the shout factory dvd of this movie in in one of the extra features is a 16 minute interview with reed bernie yeah and he tells that story What's funny about that that Shout Factory Blu-ray is that it's got interviews with uh, Bruce Campbell, Edward Pressman, and Reed Bernie, and they all like normally the behind the scenes stuff on Blu-rays. People are very like they they try to be pretty like you like you said diplomatic, mm. and on these they're all like, yeah, this movie was kind of fucked, like it did <laughs> not go the way it was supposed to. Oh, that's <laughs> they're, funny. Ve- they're very they're all very honest about like how like this was not exactly the movie we were go- setting out to make. Yeah, Bertie Bertie was like, I mean, he, he he was nervous, and he 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 talked about he knew he was aware that like Bruce Campbell was originally supposed to be the guy. And uh, but he was he said that Campbell was like super, super nice to him the whole time. Very yeah. cool with him. Couldn't have been more professional. But, you know, and he talks about being a little confident. Like he he was not like a slapstick guy. He was, yeah. you know, he was he was like into plays and all that stuff. And, you know, he was considered, I guess, himself more of a serious actor. He talks about being in like the scene where uh, he sees uh, the chick for the first time in his uh tie flies up he was just like being in there he was like they put the fake tie on me and it's like popping up and he's like okay i see what kind of movie we're doing now (laughs) (laughs) uh, but he said he felt confident to it up until the editing process and then uh, anyway as the villainous crush and cottish ramey cast the late paul smith most well known for his role as rabin and david lynch's dune and of course as bluto and robert altman's popeye and then there was uh brian james best known as the replicant Leon in Blade Runner. Yeah. It's funny. As I watched this, like I, I couldn't quite place Paul Smith as Bluto, mm. but as I was watching it, I was like, man, this guy's like giving me big, like Robert Altman Popeye vibes. And I then I was like, the same exact thing. dude. It really like felt like that. And then I, because he doesn't have the beard and stuff, he looks, he looks different, you know, very right. different than he does in right. Popeye. But uh, obviously if you know it's the same person, you can tell, but it just didn't, like strike me but i was just getting the same kind of vibes that you get you get from all really all the characters the way that they're played in popeye and even the way they talk and like their mouths kind of barely move or it's like very cartoonish you know oh sure and and it wasn't until i looked them up and i was like oh well i guess that makes sense now he is Bluto. (laughs) i remember when those guys show up like i was watching the movie and i was like this is some slapstick looney tune shit going on here for real very much uh, but when you saw those two guys, Popeye was like the first thing that came to mind. Like mm-hmm. I, for some reason, when I was watching the villains and the way they just have that, like, oh, I'll tell you what. The surprise more people in the film didn't go. Yeah, see. <laughs> well, that's yeah. So cast in the lead female role of Nancy was Cherie Wilson. Uh, this was Wilson's first feature film role, but not long after this, she was cast in one of her most well-known roles as April Ewing on Dallas. 
I watched Dallas. I mean, I knew of Dallas. I didn't really watch Dallas. I, I was aware enough, like when Jr. got shot, that it was a thing. But I was pretty mm. young. And so, you did that thing on your fingers with who shot Jr. Do you remember that? Do you guys ever do that? No. no. Who shot Jr. Who shot Jr. But you'd have to like lower a finger every time you laid it, and then would end up being the bird. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. It was real. My, that's, a, that's some playground I, shit. Yeah, I never. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. I remember I that from up. elementary school for some reason. It just came back to me. Well, if you, like me, are a little too young to remember a whole lot of Dallas, then you may also know her as Assistant District Attorney Alex Cahill on Walker, Texas Ranger. 196 episodes in the eyes of a ranger. <laughs> well, uh, so, like, that's like most episodes, I think, right? I, yeah, she, I mean, a, she was a series bulk, regular. She, yeah, that's the bulk of them. She sure. was one of the lead. She was one of the three, one of the four leads. It was her. Mm-hmm. It was Trevette. It was Walker, and it was the old, the guy. old yeah, the old guy. The old, the I don't remember. Guy. I don't that's remember his name. The old guy that's that's not uh, Wilford Brimley. Yeah, it's not. It's <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> not Wilford Brimley. Poor man's Wilford Brimley. <laughs> yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> um, she, the, yeah, Campbell says in the uh, screen test. I mean, obviously, she's he was like you know she's drop dead gorgeous, uh, but Sam just liked her because they had to practice a scream. And so maybe that was still the horror movie sensibility coming back <laughs> yeah. or something. They said that she could scream like crazy. And they were like, oh, yeah, let's get her. Nice. Other members of the cast include uh, Louise Lasser, who'd appeared in several Woody Allen films as Helene Trend, a small role, but a pretty important role. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ernest Trend, uh, her husband, is played by Crime Waves producer Edward R. Pressman, uh, who is not an actor. He's got like three acting credits to his name. Ramey just wanted him to do that. Uh, and then you've got Sam Raimi's brother, Ted. Francis McDormand, Rob Tapert, and both of the Cohen brothers uh, with cameos in the film. I wonder if I wonder if the fact that uh, Pressman got a role as a producer, it was like, well, he gets he gets a role as and he's a producer. Why can't I have the role? It, it, I it actually, I'm a producer. It actually wasn't. Uh, Campbell says in the commentary, like uh, he said, 100%. It is not a case of a producer forcing himself into the picture. He said, yeah, Sam really? bullied him into doing a role. <laughs> he said, he's, I mean, he's, he he works in the role, honestly. He's not yeah. Bad. Yeah. He said that Sam was constantly insistent. It was like, you know, they were like the pressmen and everybody were like, no, no we'll, we'll cast somebody. And Sam was like, no, he's him. He's exactly Mr. Trend. He We're getting guy. this guy. <laughs> this nice. is the guy. And they called him Overtime Ed, they said on the set, because he would have to stick around and, and play that role. He kind of was... looks like he could be Donald Pleasant's cousin or something, doesn't he? I could see oh, that. Yeah. 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 There was some studio pressure to get some known names. So, like, Louise Lasser was the only name person right. they had. It was like Woody Allen's second wife. Uh, you know, you mentioned in there, I think yeah. they were divorced at this time. She was on a show like Mary Hartman, which was super popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a huge deal for them to get her. Uh, but, you know, as we'll discuss, I'm sure uh, it's like the, the great uh, poet Buck Cherry said uh, she loved the cocaine, loved the cocaine. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, if you're wondering where the uh, Cohen brothers are, uh, they're the newspaper uh, photographers during the prison during scenes. The, yeah, during the execution scenes. Uh, Rob uh, Tappert is uh, sitting in the bar at the Rialto. Yep. And uh, uh, another guy. Uh, well, and Ted Ramey. Ted Ramey is a waiter at, at the Rialto. Yeah. So he, he get, his is a little bit more than a cameo. I think he actually has a credit. In the credits, whereas the Coens and Rob Tapert are uncredited, whereas and, and Ted Ramey actually is yeah. you know, listed. I was going to say, there's a bunch of people in there. There was even one of their guys that was like an investor in uh, Evil Dead, who's like the bartender there. And uh, Phil uh, Phil Gillis, remember Phil Gillis yeah. we talked about? He yeah. plays the priest. 
Nice. Oh, wow. He was the the like lawyer, I think, right? That we talked about. Yeah. Uh and and Frances McDormand's pretty easy to spot here. She's one of the nuns at the end, but she doesn't have any lines, but she's in- incredibly recognizable in those scenes. There's uh also two guys that that are the Hughes brothers, but we'll talk more about them in just a minute. But uh Emil Sitka uh was uh a regular on the Three Stooges. He uh so if you watch the movie, obviously there's a lot of things, but there's like bowling balls rolling off a shelf and falling mm-hmm. onto a guy's head and stuff. But Emil Sitka yeah. was always uh, a crazy professor in uh the Three Stooges shorts, and this was the first time that they could actually get people in, so they reached out to him to see if he'd be interested. And they said they like hit him up. They were like, uh, would you, would you come do this role? And, uh, oh, sorry, the role he plays, he's the old man who's blowing his nose all the time. who's in the elevator and stuff. Uh, um, he, he had uh, to be in like his seventies or something at this point. Right? Yeah. They thought he might be dead. They said, but he was like, apparently super young in the three stooges. He just <laughs> looked old. Huh. <laughs> and so now oh. he was actually old. <laughs> And they said they talked to him a few times and he was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll come do it. It turns out he actually thought they were just full of shit the whole time until he got his plane ticket sent to him. And they were like, oh, I guess I'm actually going. (laughs) 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 So They showed up. Bruce Campbell says he was amazing. Uh, just comedic like he wasn't even really doing anything anymore but said his comedic timing was like perfect it was like you could do a triple take. Try to do a triple take. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This guy was awesome. Well, uh, I guess this comes to the point of the show where we challenge Todd to find <laughs> any uh, any cast members from Crime Wave in Star Trek. Well, let's see. For Crime Wave, uh, there's nobody in Star Trek. Not one. Not one person. Not a single. Not a stuntman. Not a nope. not a production assistant. Nothing. I went into some of the production folks. Like I, <laughs> I went through the entire cast, including uncredited folks, and wow. into the crew, uh, hitting a few uh folks here and there nope nobody i think i think some of that's going to come uh into focus a little bit later but yeah yeah wow that well that's uh oh for two on the on the old sam raimi that is a real bummer because you would think like brian james at least or something yeah yeah he just looks like he'd be in star trek he just looks like an alien (laughs) (laughs) i was like i'm gonna get at least one with this nope not a one not a one he was also, by the way, Brian James, I, I remember seeing he was in like, what was the Verhoeven movie? Uh, Blood, Blood and uh, I just forgot the name of the movie. Oh, the but... medieval one? Yeah, the medieval one. Yeah, Watching well, one. he's also, isn't he, isn't he in Starship Troopers? Is he in oh. Star- Does he have an appearance in Starship Troopers? I might be crazy. Uh, I don't know. We'd have to look him up now. Well, he was uh, in Walker, Texas Ranger, a two, a two-parter. In the eyes of a ranger. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not, no, I, I said Starship Troopers. You know what I was thinking of? the fifth element he uh, plays the general in the fifth element that's oh, what that's yeah. where that's what i was thinking of yep that's okay. right yeah oh yeah general monroe yeah who yeah. like peeks into the thing and he's like oh <laughs> it's like oh they're scrumping yeah <laughs> well filming on what was still at this point known as the xyz murders took place primarily in detroit and commenced on halloween and lasted until january 18th of the following year and was by most accounts a pretty difficult shoot Uh, for one the film shot almost entirely at night because the film takes place over the course of a single evening not not counting you know the wraparound scenes but uh it it really this is a this is one of those one-nighter films bruce campbell in his autobiography described crime wave the crime wave shoot as three months of swimming against the currents the film quickly went over budget and behind schedule which led to a lot of studio interference 
AFCO embassy began demanding cuts in the script, budget restrictions, layoffs. They insisted on reviewing every batch of dailies, and in doing so, they were unhappy that Raimi had once again used fake shimps because they spotted Scott Spiegel and Bruce Campbell as extras in several scenes. They're I like, saw- why, why does this guy keep turning up? Yeah, I saw <laughs> that. Where was Where was Bruce Campbell as an extra in this? I'd have to go back and look it up. Okay. He, he describes the scenes in his book, though. Uh, okay, because I, I completely missed that then. I know in yeah. the commentary he mentions, like, he points out a couple of times Scott Spiegel's in there, and he's like, he's in here like 13 times somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and Scott, Scott Spiegel just was just like, hang, he was helping, I think, do some production assistant stuff or something along those lines, uh, just kind of helping out. So they would just like throw him into scenes as a fake shimp. So uh, the the big hotel they're at or where, where they're all staying at and where the ballroom is and all that stuff is a place called uh, Hotel Toller. Uh, that was a big, fancy hotel in, in Detroit for a long, long time, but had at this point become uh, run down and uh, was condemned. So they got the use of it by talking to these two guys called the, they were the Hughes brothers and uh, Rob, the Hayford. Hughes brothers, the guys who made like Boys in the Hood. Yeah, the it was the <laughs> Rob Tebert and Bruce Campbell had to go talk to these guys, and uh, Bruce Campbell tells a story about it. it was like the first time they'd ever dealt with like good cop, bad cop in the movie business. Like they went in and said that like both brothers sat down and they're in this room at a table, and like they would talk to them and they'd be like, um, you know, we want to use the hotel to shoot this movie. We're gonna give you ten thousand dollars for it, and uh, said that one of the brothers like smashes his head down. It's like no. Are you fucking kidding me? That is ridiculous. I am not doing that. This is a joke. And he like gets up and runs out. And he says to the other brother sits there. He's like, oh, listen, my brother is a little hot headed, but it was kind of insulting to him, you know, offering him 10. And so I mean, if you up, I can't even go out there and talk to him unless you up it a little bit. Like you gotta, you know, and I'll be happy to talk to him. Let's see what we can do. So they're like, uh, okay, like 15 then. So he goes out and it comes back in and then they offer him something else. Same thing runs out. He said, we did that like five times he said i think those bastards ended up getting like thirty thousand dollars out of us to use this <laughs> hotel he was like that was the first time we'd ever dealt with getting hustled like that he, yeah. he, he was like these so these two shysters they got thirty thousand dollars and uh they got a roll sitting in the ballroom uh during all that stuff oh they've got a cameo <laughs> yeah so he's like they're, <laughs> they're in the ballroom uh hanging out he's like they had all these plans that they were going to do with this building it's a parking lot now so just if anybody's wondering, <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> it was supposed to like get to turn into like some veterans homes or something like that. But, you know, mm. that's that's the way the world works. But anyway, the um, Sam Raimi, you know, you mentioned before he had budgeted this thing at like two point five million. Um, and so that's what they got from the studio. But the one thing they talk about is he didn't take into account things like union fees, regulations, uh well, he had never had to deal with that kind of stuff before. Yeah, yeah. He never dealt with this stuff. The crew they were talking to. And know, Detroit is a union town. Yeah. So so everything costs a lot more to deal with. And so this is where the studio starts getting pissed off. Um, Bruce says, you know, that we knew there'd be different challenges with the budget and the studio and all that stuff. But he was like, we were like, good God, what the hell is a teamster? And he was like, <laughs> and he was, oh, and then you get one of the good jokes. I like these whenever they pop up. He says uh, in his interview on the Shout Factory DVD, he was like, uh, do you, how does a teamster tell a bedtime story? Once upon a time and a half. 
<laughs> nice. Oh, that's, uh, classic that's, Bruce. Yeah. Classic Bruce. Uh, but he said, yeah, they didn't know about like overtime, Screen Actors Guild, Electricians Guild, uh, Forced Call, which was like apparently when the actor is, you know, not on the call sheet and you have to, you decide you want to shoot something with them. So you have to go get them and get them to film something. So that's like extra pay mm-hmm. uh, for that actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, time sheets, doing all that stuff. He's like, this was weird. He, he I mean, this was a learning it. experience for them because you got to remember these guys went from shooting a movie in the woods with like 12 people <laughs> to to having to deal with studios and unions and producers they where they before they didn't have to answer to anybody except for themselves yeah yeah well, said- i think i think to their benefit you know the fact that they did a lot of paperwork to get ready for evil dead on the front end with you know the contracts and uh the you know the business well yeah once it got to, to- play, i think that's i think having done that when they were presented with all these things here, they were able to sort of weather the storm and survive. Mm-hmm. Cause I think someone who has no, to an extent. any, it was, yeah, to an extent. Well, they said, you know, they were in over their heads, but Bruce says, you know, you got to start somewhere. So they're also a- really young. I mean, Ramey himself is like 25 at this point. Yeah. Like they're, they're very, very young. The big learning experience you'll hear them all talk about is that they, they wanted their guys and a lot of times they can't use their guys. You got to have the studios guys and the union guys and that sort of thing. So he, he talks about like, I think Bruce said it like evil dead, you know, he's like, we're used to like taking 12 hours to get one good shot. We didn't think that was weird. And he was like, you can't do that here. A big example uh, I've seen him give a couple of times is that in the opening when, when uh, Mr. Trend is calling the exterminators or whatever, apparently that scene starts in like space. And it goes down into the city and through a skylight down through the building and all the way down and all the way down. It hits like through a light in the room and goes down to the phone and shows them like dialing in and pans up. And well, it's all it, like it, one. It pans down through the skylight and all the way down to the desk where he's tapping a cigarette on the matchbook. Uh, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But then, and, and then in the final, and, and they shot it that way. But in the final movie, We'll get to the editing process in a minute. It gets cut up into a bunch of different shots instead of this one beautiful, like, single shot. Yeah, he said they set that up, you know, for forever to get that perfect. And then he was like, and then they're just going to, like, rip it apart. Just chop it up. Yeah, just chop it up. Well, the studio was not the only problem on the film. Uh, Once again, in his autobiography, If Chins Could Kill, Campbell says that Lasser insisted on applying her own makeup for the film. Uh, and would show up on set in what Campbell described as clown makeup. Uh, so she's just got like <laughs> just white powder all over her face. Uh, again, as Gary mentioned, she loves the cocaine. <laughs> yeah, he said he said she she he was like all all his actors have like problems. He was like, but he was like she had anxiety or something going on, and mm. it was probably from from the cocaine. But <laughs> he was just like he's like I remember one day like she was obsessed with how she looked and she was worried about how she looked. And he says, uh, so one day she's not coming out of her trailer and she's fired her makeup person. And they're like, what uh, Bruce go talk to uh, Louise. Cause she's not coming out of her trailer. Cause so remember he- Bruce Campbell's a producer on this. So he found as the producer, who's also an actor, he found himself as sort of the liaison to the other actors. Yeah. When there so, was yeah. an issue. He says he walks up to the trailer, like knocks on the door, tap, 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 opens the door. And it's just like, caked on white face 
with like red, bright red lipstick over. They should have just let her go on screen that way. Honestly, he said cloud makeup. He was like, I am not exaggerating. Like it was, he was like, I literally did the three like a like a like a slapstick thing. I was just like, and. And she said, they just don't get it, Brucey. Nobody can be look good. And he was like, she thought she looked good. And he's like, so we had to like, I had to get Narrator, her to come on out. She did not. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, we took her in and he's like, I'd have, we'd have like people walk up and like casually fix her up. Like as we were prepping the shots and, and not let her look in the mirror. Yeah. And just like not let her see it. Yeah. They're like, we're just going to touch this up. And they were actually just fixing it. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> not letting her know. Uh, well, another one of the stories he tells is about uh, another cast member, Brian James, who trashed his hotel room and his excuse was that the ghost of his girlfriend's ex was in the light fixtures. I, you know, to be honest, like hearing these stories from the production, I, you know, we're, we're in a time where we get projects like the disaster artist, you know, about the room. And of course the offer uh, available now on Paramount plus uh, where it's about, you know, the making of the Godfather. Like I want a film or a, a, sh- a mini series about the making of crime wave where you've yeah. got, you know, lead oh, actor get- or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh that shit. Be that, s- that's smart. That'd be so cool. <laughs> You're not the first person I've seen uh, or read that, that has been like, why is Sam Raimi not making a movie about the making of crime wave? Right, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> direct. Yeah. Let, let him direct his own making of story. That would be yes. amazing. And like everything <laughs> he didn't get to do in crime wave, like let him do it in relentless. Like, yeah. uh, let's just go ahead and call it relentless and let's push to make that happen please well, yeah i mean that's uh, i don't know how much pull we have oh we, we can make this happen because <laughs> i believe in us we've got a film historian we've got somebody from the national wrestling life hell we've got a writer and a comedian on the show he's gonna be like wait a second did you say you have someone from the national wrestling alliance i'm <laughs> right. in you son of a bitch i'm in <laughs> uh the uh brian james i found like one thing talking about like where he he uh where he's asked what he remembers about making crime wave and he said uh three months in detroit murder city i was really sick i was doing a lot of drugs but i told sam Raimi, put me on but don't say cut let me go he did and i went and basically i had the show at that point which came after blade runner they put me on a blacklist because i wouldn't be in the union and when I came up for that, they said, you can't do the movie. Sam Raimi told him, we got to have Brian James. They said, no, he's not working with us. And finally, Sam Raimi said, look, he's the only guy we want. And they said, fine, you can have him, but we're not paying our part. So only the movie guys paid their part. I worked 10 weeks for $2,500. You know, they say, don't make waves. And I learned my lesson. <laughs> But uh, man, what a character, <laughs> man! That, oh, that monologue needs to be over an episode of Relentless. <laughs> also, I mean, I could never tell that he was on drugs during this. I mean, who could know? <laughs> who could know? <laughs> Bruce Campbell tells the story that they were like, there was one time that he, uh, this is for another episode of Relentless. Uh, he said that they were just like they couldn't find Brian James and his uh, his assistant or something said, well, we went out to like. This certain street on Detroit that they were like, 
wait, that's all like rundown cars and stuff. Like it's like nothing's there. And they were like, yeah, it's like, it's like the movie Barbarian, like the neighborhood in Barbarian. (laughs) Exactly. That's how he describes it. He was like, and apparently he was there with his sister. Somebody disappeared into a brownstone and he didn't come out. He was like, he didn't come out. It had been like 13 hours or something. (laughs) They were like, where is he? And they had to go find him. And he was, you know, that was a day. That was a day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah. And uh, then there was uh, Paul Smith, who Sam Raimi had a lot of difficulty with, apparently, like he had promised a lot of things in the audition. And then he started doing this whole thing about all the stuff he wasn't going to do once they started filming the movie. Uh He just wasn't very cooperative is the best way they put it, I think. And then uh, he they Campbell says they ended up having to make a fat suit for another guy and like a mask to go over it so a lot of the stuff like that paul smith refused to do or like none of the clothes fit him they had to cut it down the back to like get it on him he was just difficult and then his voice like it didn't work for what they were going for and so interestingly enough they they overdubbed his entire voice work on the movie and uh, i mean it it, feels overdubbed but i i assumed it was a a stylistic choice but i guess not i guess it was out of necessity yeah, and they and the voice that you're hearing is uh, dubbed by a guy named Dick Affless, who is a local celebrity, uh, aka Dick the Bruiser, professional wrestler. So. Something of a Dick Bruiser myself. There it is. <laughs> I was like, one of these guys has got to pick. That up. Come on. <laughs> uh, they, they, mean, they said they had to ask him. Like the studio was pissed, so they were like, the voice is not working. The studio is like, well, you can't just get somebody else. And then they looked at his schedule and realized he was in Rome doing something else in post-production. And they were like, now's the perfect time. And so they <laughs> well, went, he's they, not here. Yeah. They're like, well, we can't ask him. He's in Rome. So then we got to get somebody else. And do it. We just never brought it up again. Wow. Yeah. He's an interesting character, Paul Smith. I don't know a ton about him, but he, uh, I mean, he was a, he's a big dude. He's like six foot four. He has a black belt in Taekwondo. Uh, he was wow. like a he was like a philosophy major, and then at some point in like a few years before he died, he died in 2012. Uh, he became an Israeli citizen and he changed his name to Adam Eden. Okay, yeah, sounds like, like a porn okay. name, but all right. well, yeah, it does sound like a porn name. Adam <laughs> Eden, like the Garden of Eden, I guess. Yeah. I was gonna say what, what like, like a, a character, like and a character his, in a bad like f- uh, faith based movie. And yeah. his wife's name was Eve. That makes sense. <laughs> oh boy yeah. that checks out now Inter- eve, interesting eve eden definitely sounds definitely like a porn star yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well as he had done with the evil dead Raimi employed some pretty unconventional camera work on crime wave which threw the cinematographer robert primes off a little bit so primes uh he was as a cinematographer he was influenced by directors like Ingmar Bergman. So Raimi's exaggerated style was not really like an easy fit for him. Although he had worked on some ridiculous films prior to Crime Wave, uh, most specifically uh, Brian Trenchard Smith's infamous Stunt Rock, which if you have not seen, please watch Stunt Rock. It's incredible. It's a B-movie in the best way. And also uh, he worked on Charles B. Griffiths, Dr. Heckle, and Mr. Hype. Uh, if you recognize awesome. the name Charles B. Griffiths, it's because we've talked about him here on the podcast before. Uh, he was a Roger Corman alum, and he had written the original Little Shop of Horror. So we talked about him a good bit on that Cinema Shock Roulette episode. Nice. It's weird. Like uh, Prime seems like uh, Bob Prime there. He he seems like the only guy that the exact opposite was the case for uh, with the troubles they were having. Uh, Camel says like he was just so slow. 
Like he would take so long setting up these shots that Sam yeah. wanted. And uh, they were having such a hard time with him. Said that uh, it got assigned to uh, Bruce says it was assigned to him and Rob Tapper to speed deal with up. him. <laughs> and they would try to speed him up. And that he would just, he was like, he was such a bold man. Like he, he would just like sit there and be like, guys, I, yo, I think I'm shooting in as fast as I'm gonna. Like it's, it's, <laughs> that's, that's how, it's, this is how long it takes. It's going to take <laughs> as long as it takes. He said he even remembers like him and Rob Tipper, like uh, driving him home one day or driving him back to the, where he was staying. And like, uh, said, you know, it's, it's tough, man. Like we got to speed things up or we're going to have to replace you or something. He's like, well, shit guys, if you're going to send me home, you should just go ahead and send me home. <laughs> they were like, they were like, and we couldn't fire him. We were just like, well, fuck. Like he's, just, <laughs> like he's, he's a it. tough son of a bitch. I mean, hey, I, I admire that. Honestly, yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's a great, that's a great scene in an episode of Relentless, <laughs> where they're like trying to muscle this dude who just yeah. doesn't give a fuck. I love it. <laughs> Regardless of what you might think of the vinyl product, and we will get around to that, uh, Raimi's ambitious style is still very clear in this film. Uh, No other scene in the film showcases that more, in my opinion, than the chase featuring the parade of protection, a.k.a. the safest hallway in the world. Uh, A scene (laughs) in one of many in the film that wouldn't feel out of place. I don't think in a Coen brothers film either that scene involved a series of walls and doors that were set to fall like dominoes, which is a pretty dangerous stunt if it were to go wrong, since a person could easily get crushed. Uh, And it took a lot of coordination on the part of the camera crew as well to get that scene. Right. Yeah. uh, You know, that whole sequence really took me uh, to stuff like uh, Buster Keaton and some of the, some of the Abbott and Costello stuff, three stooges, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also made me start thinking about stuff like Jackie Chan's films. I was oh, like, yeah. that, well, Jackie are, Chan is such a huge, so hugely influenced by Buster Keaton. Yeah. Yeah. And this, that stunt, I mean, it is, it's very, cause I was looking at it. I was like, Oh, they don't really have the money to do this digitally. Like that, that's, that's happening on screen. Yep. Like that, that was, that's real. And I was just like, man, this is so cool. And it, they pull it off and it's so great. I love it's the a great, idea. It's of honestly like, a great scene. Yeah. I love the idea of combining like those really technical, very uh, intricate stunts and comedy. Like mm-hmm. that stuff is so fun to me. I love that. Well, you mentioned Buster Keaton. I mean, that scene specifically, reminded me of the scene from steamboat bill jr mm. where the the facade of the front of the house falls down yeah buster keaton is standing there right where the window is so it yep. doesn't hit him you know which is again if it had gone wrong he would have literally been crushed by a f- part of a house falling on him. it's still yeah. a wicked yeah. thing to watch yeah yeah <laughs> Some of this film's most dangerous stunts involved cars, especially the clim- the climactic car chase where the good guys and the bad guys are jumping across cars, fighting each other as the cars speed down the road. To pull that sequence off, the production shut down the Henry Cabot Lodge freeway for a night. Uh, Primes, and this is from the book The Unseen Force that I credited last week, the uh, the book by John Kenneth Muir, one of our main sources for this series. Uh, and in that, they interview Bob Primes, and he says, quote, When the script says the car pulls off the road, that actually means the car is in the right-hand lane of a busy freeway when suddenly the driver jerks the wheel left, goes into traffic, causing cars to spin out and tractor trailers to jackknife. The car then jumps the divider, turning into oncoming traffic, which swerves around, and then the car pulls off the road, six lanes over on the other side. 
That's what the car pulls off the road means to Sam Raimi. <laughs> Eagle-eyed viewers probably noticed that one of the cars in this scene is Sam's Delta 88, a.k.a. the classic. Uh, Cherie Wilson drives it for most of the scene, which ends with the classic dangling off a bridge before plunging into the Detroit River. And remember, this is in the dead of winter when they're shooting this. Remember, they started shooting on Halloween mm. in Detroit. Oh, boy. So they're, we're talking sub-freezing temperatures. It's snowing. But the production is not trying to let the snow show up on camera. Uh, so they're having to try to get rid of it. Uh, ambulances were on standby on the set in case anybody got hypothermia. That car, uh, again, I, I think I like alluded to it in the past that like apparently there was something in the Evil Dead commentary where you could tell with Sam and Bruce where it was like Bruce had a problem with this car. Uh, I'm starting to see it formulate. Apparently, during the filming, Bruce Campbell, like during the actual chase, there's like scenes with the car, like where it's on like a, uh, they're in a warehouse, but oh you know, yeah, yeah, they're they're like, green or not or rear projecting. Yeah, and so then there's actual scenes where they need like some stunt stuff done. Bruce Campbell took uh, the Delta 88 and had it uh, gutted and replaced the transmission and the engine and everything and turned into a stunt car to get used in the filming without Sam Raimi knowing right before filming, they said, Sam, he walked out. And it was like, uh, wait a minute. That's my car. <laughs> and he was like, you bastard. You just gutted my car. You tried to kill the classic. You will never <laughs> kill the classic. <laughs> and, and so he had it pulled and had it redone. <laughs> and, wow. uh, Saved the car, and so they he already had like a stuck car in mind and everything. And so, anyway, this is the first example I think of where we get to see like Bruce Campbell apparently has an active mission to try to destroy this car. He's got a grind against <laughs> the classic. <laughs> He's got an axe to pick with this car for some reason. I've seen like uh, clips of them so far, and I'm excited to dig into it more. Where like Bruce Campbell is like on panels, being like, "What happened in that car?" well the the interesting thing about the delta being in this movie is that this movie has a this movie maybe what this is something we'll get into when we discuss it a little bit more but the movie feels like it's set in the 40s yes but it's not it's set in the modern day although people dress like it's in the 40s the rialto feels like it's straight out of the 40s with the big band and everything uh plus it's got the, the whole slap slapstick kind of feel yeah feel straight out of like a 40s you know slapstick movie mm-hmm. but it's set in modern day because i mean you've got the delta there you got the classic there uh and there are some other things here and there that hint that it's in the present day but it's very it's very odd it's very strange and that might be a budgetary thing because at two and a half million there's no way that they could do it like a complete period piece you know because mm. they'd have to Every car would have to be replaced with period cars. Every building would have to have a facade, you know, things like that. So maybe that was part of it. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, going back to the stunts real quick. I mean, there was a, there were a few of them that was, that were crazy to me. Like, uh, is it Mr. Trend that gets, whoever gets shocked the first time and his glasses blow up. Yeah. I think uh, that's Mr. Trend. Yeah. 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 That was done by putting these little BB guns on the arms of the glasses that somehow uh, Campbell was saying that crew had convinced them this was the way to do this, that like they air shot two BBs into the glasses that caused them to explode. <laughs> He's like, Jeez. looking back on it, it was like, I guess the BBs could bounce back and go in your eyeballs, right? Yeah, or something. probably. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah. So I don't think you can do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that seems, <laughs> it seems dangerous. 
<laughs> but uh yeah and at one point uh they were doing the shooting on the bridge overlooking the detroit river uh it was frozen at the time yeah. and uh so you know in the script though it's like clear running water uh so you know they're braving all these conditions and ice and everything but they ended up having to blow up the ice with like dynamite so they're like setting up charges i think it started with bruce campbell and like rob taper just throwing rocks at it trying to break the ice until they realized that wasn't <laughs> going to do the trick yeah just insane <laughs> uh and also you know during this shoot some of the crew members did get sick because of the cold uh several folks came down with the flu i know bob primes mentions that he got the flu during this and and several other cast and crew members did too they said another time they were spent a week like filming uh in detroit uh on one of the streets uh and it was directly under a nursing home and they had the huge wind machines uh blowing at a lot of the time and it said one evening like a glass bottle came flying down to the street and it had a note in it when it crashed and uh they opened it and the note said the noise is keeping me awake all night long and i am getting sick i am dying because of you <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think even the wind machines that they were using were not like your traditional wind machines because like Ramy wanted a lot of wind in this and you can see it in some of the early scenes in this like, oh it looks yeah like, it looks like uh old reed bernie is about to blow away in a couple of those scenes I think Campbell said, and forgive me, I didn't write this down in my notes, but in, in if, uh, his autobiography, I think he says that they're using like like the uh, those airboats that you use in like a swamp, you know, the, uh, the with, the, with, the big, with the big fan on the back, you know, I think yeah. they're using those fans. Oh, my God. Which those things are very. Have you guys ever been on one of those boats? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're, well, yeah, you grew up in a swamp like me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up in the swamp, but I, Todd, I grew up close. Todd grew up in the city. I mean, I, I grew up in the city, too, but there were there were swamps nearby. <laughs> Gary, Gary grew up in the swamp. Yeah. Literally. Like <laughs> like a, Oka, a the Okefenokee swamp. <laughs> there was a storm going on according to storyline you know but i i did see where uh the newspaper flies up you remember there's the yeah it's showing the cityscape in the newspaper there's a sign by the way i did not know this but there's a just a little easter egg lulu's lingerie is one of the signs and that is apparently I saw that yeah apparently that is sam raimi's mom's lingerie shop like, oh wow <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then the newspaper flies up. And if you get time to look through all the newspaper, there's actually a thing on the newspaper that uh, one of the headlines under the storm stuff says military seals off Tennessee murder site. Uh, uh, then time space disturbance discovered or something like that. So it's <laughs> oh, like, oh, that's cool. I love that. That's great. Crime well, wave takes place in the same universe as Evil yeah, Dead. Apparently. <laughs> Sam Raimi uh, cinematic universe. There, there you go. go. Let's just assume that all of these movies take place in the same universe. Let's do that from here yeah. on. This episode on. Quick of the Dead is like <laughs> a prequel. Yeah, it's a prequel. <laughs> well, Dangerous Stunts and Cold Michigan Nights were the least of Sam Raimi's worries. Back in Hollywood, over 2,000 miles away from where the film was being shot, executives at the studio were not happy with what they were seeing. Uh, and someone at Avco Embassy suggested that the film be told in flashbacks. Uh, suggested might not be the correct word to use there. They basically ordered Sam Raimi to add some wraparound scenes. Mm. So once the shoot in Detroit was over, Raimi and his crew went to Hollywood to shoot some additional scenes, mainly one set in the prison, which is named Hudsucker Penitentiary, by the way. Uh, of, of course, this was all a, a pretty expensive process, and the folks at Embassy uh, did not hesitate to remind Raimi that he was already over budget and over schedule, which I feel like is 
you like you guys made me come back here and do this. So what you don't bitch at me about it being over schedule if you're forcing me to shoot scenes that I wasn't planning on shooting. Mm-hmm. But once those reshoots had completed, Avco Embassy continued to meddle with the film, getting even more involved in the post-production process. Ramey had planned on hiring his Evil Dead composer, Joe DeLuca. Here and after referred to as Jolo. Only by you, Todd. Okay. <laughs> Jolo. <laughs> uh, he was uh, originally who they wanted to write the score for the film. He had, you know, uh, they had, we, had, we discussed kind of his background on our last episode. Loduca recalls a conversation he had with an executive at the studio who was concerned that the movie be perceived as a comedy. They were worried that the audience kind of wouldn't understand that this was supposed to be funny. Well, Loduca said that one of the ways to do that was to play the music straight, where the music is the straight man over the comedy. Uh, He used Airplane as an example, a fairly recent example, where this had been done well. But the executive, who remains unnamed in, in all the stories, seemed to get a little bit nervous at the idea and Loduca didn't get the job as a result. And this is kind of surprising. Uh, well, although I guess it shouldn't be. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a well-known characteristic of comedy that for certain things, you know, the straighter you play it, the funnier it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's countless stories of comedians who are working on either a film or a TV series where they're getting notes about comedy from someone who does not do comedy, right? (laughs) It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, and that's, and and this is just another one of the aspects of this production that is just like, would you just leave us alone and let us make our movie, please? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I I think uh, one of the biggest issues with what happened with this movie is that the studio did not understand what kind of movie Sam Raimi was trying to make. Right, yeah. Like in in general. For sure. Well, since uh, old Jolo didn't get the job, hey, a composer named Arlen Ober was hired. Though I'm not sure what drew producers to his work since he had mostly worked in low-budget genre stuff before, like The Incredible Melting Man and Bloody Birthday. Uh, although his movie immediately before Crime Wave was Paul Bartel's Eating Raul, which is a great film, although I, I don't recall a whole lot about its score. But I, there's nothing about in his previous work that really screams comedy. Eating Raul is, is a comedy, but it's a very dark, very dark comedy. Uh, so there's nothing zany in his background. So I'm, I don't I don't really know why they're like, oh, this guy can't do it, but this guy can. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. At this point, with no Bruce Campbell in the lead and his pick of composer taken away from him, this was feeling less and less like the movie Sam Raimi set out to make. Then came the kicker. The studio took editorial control away from Raimi completely. So they had picked a woman named Kathy Weaver, uh, and I, I can't find much about her, and I don't know exactly what it was about her, but uh, she, she, she'll later go, uh, she does like Raising Arizona and Dark Man. And oh, wow. so... They like her and uh, but they apparently she had started the editing, but it was taking a long time. And when they, they had to do like a little screening for some stuff for the ed, uh, execs and the execs hated it and wanted it to recut it. So then they brought in this guy, uh, Michael Kelly. Well, Sam Raimi would later say, quote, they lost a lot of my favorite scenes, including a beautiful sequence in the sewers. The end product was incomprehensible to me. The beginning and end were so different, even I can't understand what's going on in that movie. Wow. 
Well, near the end of post-production, Campbell got into an argument with the studio and other producers that weren't part of Ramey's Michigan Mafia. Uh, he argued that he and Ramey had always been closely involved in the editing of their films, describing the producer's behavior as nickel and dime bullshit. Uh, basically, the, the producers didn't want Campbell. They didn't seem like they wanted him involved. When they got back to Hollywood, they, they're like, oh, we're going to pay for two of y'all, meaning so there's Ramey tapered and Campbell we're mm. going to pay for two of y'all to stay in LA but we're not paying for all three of you so that's why he's calling it nickel and dime bullshit yeah. uh, he also got called an asshole by one of the producers in return uh, as a result Campbell vowed to never work with big budget movie producers again which he was not exactly going to stick to that vow but uh, you know at the time he was like this I do not like studio filmmaking you know what this it's stuff like this it keeps folks from starring in star trek bruce <laughs> right will wheaton <laughs> he said they sat down in the meeting with these guys and uh when they're gonna redo all this stuff and uh uh the the studio guys that were there it, it was a guy i i think bruce gibble says he's he was like sitting there with him and he said you know we we're moving everything to la uh and he said it was him, Sam Raimi, and Rob Tappert sitting there. And he said, we'll pay for two of you uh, to come back. And he said, Bruce just like, I don't know. I think even from the other, other stuff and everything, I don't know if everything just like built up inside him. But he was just like so angry at this point. He said he looked at the guy and was like, you're going to pay for two of us. How many people do you see sitting in front of you right now, asshole? <laughs> 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 And, uh, he said, and he looks back now and he says, you know, this guy's getting heat from his bosses uh, that are, he said, I'm sure that they're asking him, how did this get away from you? Mm. Like what's happening? Yeah. And uh, he said, so it's just, you know, it's essentially that whole shit rolls downhill thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but uh, he said, eventually they, they just all three were like, you know what? You pay for whatever. All three of us are coming. <laughs> and so we'll, yeah, we'll their movie. Be, yeah. And, uh, uh, he said they learned though, that like, if you, you know, they would have been happy for them not to show up at all. But he said, he, he said, we learned real quick. If you don't give up, they can't get rid of you. Mm -hmm. they, uh, he's like, they'll have to physically change the locks for us to be out of any of this. So he's like, so we showed up, we didn't leave. Uh, we stayed through post-production. We were there for the whole thing. Uh, but he's like, I was definitely sitting there at the end, just like, I'm going back to Michigan and I'm going to raise 12 bucks and start making low budget shit again. This, this is horseshit. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but now like when he looks back, you see the stuff with him now, he's like, it, it definitely, uh, he says it turned us into adults. We all went in as kids. We came out as men <laughs> like we're, uh, you know, but he says to this day, uh, they have a, uh, crime wave meter like that they talk about. So like when mm. something's going wrong, like in a production or something, like things are getting out of hand, they're like, oh man, I don't know. My crime wave meter's going off. Here. <laughs> <laughs> he said, they still talk about that. Oh, and funny. then the final straw, they released the movie and, uh, but, uh, well, you'll, you'll talk about that in a second, but they don't, they don't really give them much of a chance. No, they do not. Sure. Uh, the film had its first test screening in San Diego under the much cooler title of broken hearts and noses. Holy shit. That's a cool title. That's the, I mean, that's the title that they should have used. Yes. Honestly. Oh my God. That's, a, that's an incredible title. It's better yeah. than it's better, much better than relentless. Uh, the XYZ murders is pretty cool, but broken hearts and noses is a great title. Cause it also sounds like an old, like paperback, like pulp. Yes. Oh, you know, book. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, in France, it was released under the title Death on the Grill, which I really like for some reason. And in Italy, it was known as the two craziest killers in the world, hmm. which I'm sure there's something lost in translation there, maybe. But So <laughs> Broken Hearts and Noses makes me think of one of those movies that Kevin McAllister is watching while, yes. his, while his parents like are Like Angels gone. with Dirty Faces. Yeah. Yes! <laughs> I can see that. Reviews for the film were decidedly mixed. Uh, that's being generous. Yeah. Variety's review said the film gave the impression of having been storyboarded rather than, than directed and said that the film looked cheap, although they also said that laughs are abundant enough to make this a passably funny entertainment. Vincent Canby, writing for the New York Times, gave a generally negative review as well, although he did sprinkle in a little bit of praise in his review. He said, quote, it's full of film knowledge and is amazingly elaborate for a low-budget movie. The only problem is that it's not funny. One smiles at the inspiration of the jokes, though not at their execution. Mm. The chase that ends the movie is something of a technical feat, but it remains as dimly humorless as a smart film student's essay on how to shoot a chase. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we've we've talked a lot about comedy in this particular episode. That that sort of thing is a really big deal when you're talking about comedy. I've worked with enough uh, newer comedians, and I've been able to, you know, gain some knowledge uh, and w- wisdom from folks who have been doing it much longer than me. Uh, and you can you can craft a solid joke all day long, but if the delivery is off, no matter how good the joke is it's going to bomb. And with something like this, where a film is such a collaborative effort, there's so many people involved that if, if you're all not on the same page, which was clearly what happened with this, the, the studio obviously didn't understand. You had some, some folks in the cast who were way out in left field and you get, you get crime wave. So uh, yeah, no, it's, this makes total sense. Well, yeah, I think that like the, even on the page, a, a joke could work. That it's not going to work. Absolutely. On, yeah. Uh, once you film it, you know, it, it, it's a very, it's a different medium. Yeah. So some things that could sound like they're going to be funny if they're not pulled off. Right. It's, it's not going to work, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's um, strange. Like that same can interview you're talking about. Um, it, you know, he says uh, one of the things I liked, uh, in there was that, uh, what do you say? Uh, it's a comedy made by and for movie buffs, people whose view of the world has been shaped almost exclusively by movies rather than firsthand experience. He's not and, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and and also, you know, you mentioned that that other quote about the film students essay. There was an, a review from uh, Rick Groen of the Toronto Globe and mail and said uh watching crime wave is a bit like reading a derivative essay from a bright but lazy student the quotes come thick and fast yet nothing original in between mm. and I, co- just, I come thick and fast oh gross. that is that is gross <laughs> i got one um, <laughs> i got one <laughs> uh, but he, that, that same writer also complains about and, and, and some of this i was seeing in like a, a book i was reading like excerpts from for about the cohen brothers and i cannot forget it's, it starts off the cohen brothers colon something i can't remember the name of the book but anyway point is Groen also said in there that the film awkwardly mixes two genres screwball comedy and film noir mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. but the book pointed out the author of that book was pointing out that this is exactly the stuff that's going to get applauded by critics with yeah. the Coed brothers later. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, those are the, what the reviews were saying at the time of the release. 
Um, I wonder if this film has been reevaluated over the years by some of the reviewers uh, on the internet. No, it turns out if you go look up reviews <laughs> of this movie, everybody five stars. It is weird. It's the highest rated film on Letterboxd. <laughs> uh, no, man, it turns out most people who watch this movie need a nap. All right, let's see here. Uh, this is a review from Newell. It says, uh, bad, bad, bad. This is on IMDb. I don't know if I should specify where these are from, but it doesn't matter. Nobody anyway, cares. Nobody cares. One star. <laughs> Easily the worst movie I have ever seen. Unfortunately, I have this quirk where I have to watch an entire movie. There was much groaning from mental anguish this movie put me through. I would not wish having to watch this movie on my worst enemy. We're going to talk about our own views on this film, but worst movie you've ever seen seems a little harsh. But you know what? Kudos to them for finishing the movie. Yeah. We, we've done a lot of reviews where it was like, oh, at 10 minutes in. Turn That's it true. Off. Yeah. In, turn that, I, think those, I think those reviews are completely discounted. If you can't finish the whole movie, then your review, your review holds no weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so it, say it a film lot. historian Justin Bishop. <laughs> it takes a lot for me to not finish a movie, I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, although I, mean, I was, was not able to our... finish Bollywood Evil Dead. <laughs> but did you write a letterbox review of it i didn't i didn't even log it because i didn't finish it i won't log yeah. it i watch See? movies a lot like at night when i'm going to bed i'll throw movies on mm. and if but if i'm not watching the whole thing i don't they, they don't count i don't log them meanwhile i think i posted in letterbox the other day and i can't remember what movie it was for now but it was a person i was talking about how nuts it drives me because they had posted a review they were like haven't seen this one yet but one star if it's anything like his other movies i'm not a fan that's and so I was dumb. like, what? <laughs> That's so stupid. How can you do that? Yeah. <laughs> You're ruining the whole fucking system right now. Uh, anyway, Merck watched it. And uh, Merck says, uh, nobody is a bigger fan of the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. Believe me, this is no Fargo or a simple plan. Crime Wave is a challenge to sit through. And I have seen Ren and Stimpy cartoons that made more sense. The viewer is bounced back and forth between two cartoon-like stories, neither one of which is remotely interesting. My feeling is that many fans of the Coens and Sam Raimi will be curious enough about Crime Wave to seek this out. Be warned, this film is a total mess, almost unwatchable, and to be avoided. Unless you find unfunny, boorish, badly acted films entertaining, forget Crime Wave. I know I'm trying to forget it as I write this. Not sure why they had to throw shade at Ren and Stimpy like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But at least he's no Mr. Contrarian who gave it one star. And Is that his actual it- name, Mr. Contrarian? Yeah. Oh, I am looking name. forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the title of the review is "Slit Your Wrists Horrible." <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so coming in hot. Try to watch it all. I couldn't. If you dare, oh, this is what we were just talking about. Uh, <laughs> If you dare just to soak in the worst movie ever made, never have acting, editing, plot, dialogue, and sound so infuriated me at the same time. I understand that it's spoofing cartoons and old crime films. I grew up on Mad Magazine, Cracked, Crazy, and National Lampoon, but this is unfunny with a capital U. Uh, And I slit my wrist. (laughs) I, I mean, to be honest... Most reviews of this film are probably pretty negative. If he were truly a Mr. Contrarian, he would have given it five stars. That's, That's true. Oh, yeah. Mr. Contrarian, you let us all down. 
Uh, Bo here gave it a half star. He said, uh, I say this as a fan of Sam Raimi, the Coen's dark comedies, over-exaggerated, ridiculous movies, and even movies that are undeniably bad, but enjoyable to watch anyway. All caps here. Good God, this film is aggressively obnoxious and it clearly hates everyone involved in making it and whoever watches it. Please do not waste what little life you have left with this trouser state of a motion picture. I love how all of these trouser reviews are staying. like... I love how all of these reviews are saying... I love Sam Raimi's movies. I love the Coen brothers, but this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that seems to be a trend here. Uh, Daniel says, uh, the drop in quality from the evil dead to this is grotesque. Nothing works. Unfunny, obnoxious, ugly, un- un- seemingly never ending. I think the project was muddled and misguided from its inception, but Raimi could have maybe done something with it had he been given free reign. But the producers had to make sure that it all went to shit. Blame the suits, you know? When in doubt. (laughs) It's not always their fault, but in this case, I think they they do share a lot of the blame. Uh, Let's see. David says, uh, Bruce Campbell in this movie, four stars. Everything else in this movie, negative four stars. (laughs) <laughs> also stop trying to make incels into likable guys he's not an incel he's just, <laughs> he's just unlucky with the ladies <laughs> he's just a nerd ah, all right just a few more here uh one star from zach says one of the most exhausting movies i've ever seen it simultaneously moved 180 miles per hour and felt like it lasted three hours as my mind froze in time due to the nonsense that was happening on screen that's not an accurate oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the few uh episodes where i'm like eh, they, they made some points on this. <laughs> uh, robin gave it one there are a few directors alive today that baffle me as much as sam Raimi. i'm constantly reminded that he should not have made it into hollywood and that his entire career even when he shines and makes brilliant movies is a fluke it's nowhere more evident than in the awful comedy crime wave. I actually find it baffling that Raimi's career has survived as long as it has, especially through the 80s. There is no doubt that Evil Dead has carried that man, for better or worse, into Hollywood, where I'm not entirely sure he belongs. Yes, he's capable of great films, The Evil Dead, Dark Man, Army of Darkness, The Gift, and Oz the Great and Powerful. But this is certainly... Uh, all right. <laughs> but this is certainly the worst of his career. And undoubtedly, one of the worst comedies that I have ever seen. If you want a rare Raimi film, I'd recommend The Gift instead of this, about a thousandfold. I mean, The Gift is pretty good. It's not one of his best films, but it's pretty good. But the fact that they are praising Oz the Great and Powerful discounts literally everything else that they say in that review to me. (laughs) I, I think that is, I think Oz is without a doubt the worst thing that Sam Raimi's ever done. Wow. interesting Mm. uh all right half star last one from cerulean ruin breathing in fuck you sam raimi (laughs) wow that's it huh (laughs) their name is their name is cerulean ruin yeah it's like a play on blue ruin the movie blue ruin uh, maybe yeah. you know the 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 guy who did uh what's it green room his previous movie yeah, 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 yeah. So they're just trying to be pretentious and and they, they do it. yeah i was gonna say <laughs> well done they got it 
Well, Avco Embassy didn't have a lot of faith in the film when they were releasing it. They never gave it much of a wide release at all. It played in a handful of film festivals, then it got released sporadically across the country in places like Santa Cruz, uh, Kansas, and Alaska. On June 6, 1986, it was released at the Bowery Theater in Manhattan, uh, which was the same day that Arnold Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal and Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars came out. Hmm. Uh, the, the Bowery Theater in Manhattan, I should point out, it was called the Thalia Theater at the time that it was released. The Bowery Theater is just kind of the the general name that people refer to it as. Uh, it went through like six different names over the years uh, since it was built in the 1800s, burned down, got rebuilt. There's a whole Wikipedia page about it. Go read it. Uh, so, uh, but some sources, including Campbell's autobiography, claim that it was released only in Kansas and Alaska and nowhere else, and only there so that it could meet a minimum release requirement needed to be sold to HBO. Because HBO is like, well, if you if we're going to release it, it has to have some sort of theatrical release. I guess that's what they did at the time. Mm. Uh, so it was released in a couple of theaters, and then it was dumped on HBO after going down in flames at the box office. That was the straight up thing from Bruce Campbell. He says that uh, he said that was the final straw for us. That didn't even put it out. He said that for HBO, there was a contractual agreement that it had some sort of theatrical release. So they release it in Kansas and Alaska. He said that they did a screening in Seattle. He was like, we had one good screening. He's like, I wish we had a videotaped it because <laughs> he was like the screening. He's like a guy comes up. Before, and that was at a film festival, I think. Right. Yeah, I think in you're Seattle. right. But he says the guy comes out and he says immediately stands up front. Everybody's like, folks, you're about to watch a very silly movie. Put your silly hat on. He's like, I wish we'd filled that guy. That's what you should do. He's yeah, like, I would tell that to on. anybody. He's like, I would just say that to people if they're going to watch Crimeway. Just put your silly hat on. Put Otherwise, you, you might not like this. But yeah, it's I mean, you're right. You've got to be you've got to be in the mindset of like what type of movie you're about to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would he, agree with that. He was saying to this day, like, uh, you know, the, the people around Detroit, like, when he, he'll still like see guys that worked in that area or like in Detroit and stuff. It's like everybody still shudders. They're like, oh, <laughs> crime wave. <laughs> <laughs> They've got trauma, got <laughs> ongoing trauma from filming crime wave. <laughs> well, to this day, Raimi dismisses the film and rarely discusses it at all. When he does, he often calls it slime wave, which is a very Sam Raimi joke. It does feel like Sam Raimi to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but that's understandable since he put a lot of time and energy into it only to have it taken away from him and then released into the world in a version that he didn't approve of and barely released at that. Uh, this was his sophomore slump, but it wasn't entirely his fault, I don't think. Yeah, no, Bruce, that's fair. Bruce Campbell says the movie was never actually released. It escaped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you remember John Cameron, the guy we talked about on Evil Dead, that that uh, he, he was second assistant director on this. Uh, and uh, he was on Evil Dead, the guy that left NYU and didn't go back to school. But he mm, said yeah. uh, he, he had a quote that said, uh, I see Crime Wave as a real turning point in a certain way, because if you survive that experience, nothing in the business could ever be this hard again. That's <laughs> and, true. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, Bruce on that interview, I mean, he says, uh, well, we learned how to make movies better. We learned how to make simpler stories. We learned how to be more focused about what it's going to be. Sam mm -hmm. continued his sort of ridiculous visual style. 
but we were more organized as filmmakers. We could accommodate that for him because we knew that we needed the proper amount of prep time. We knew that if special effects were involved, that we had to cast the actors early so that we could physically get molds taken to their face in time. We started to actually finally figure out what this whole thing was about. How to make Um, movies. Yeah. (laughs) He said, from Evil Dead, we learned how to succeed. In Crime Wave, we learned how to fail. It's an important lesson. Uh, And it tells you a lot about Crime Wave and how it was received that you rarely hear it discussed ever, if at all. Uh, Because as opposed to The Evil Dead, which, as we discussed on our last episode, has an enduring quality that has people continuing to talk about it four decades later, there's something missing from Crime Wave. Mm. Uh, The simple fact that it's a collaboration between Raimi, who's one of our most, I think, interesting and commercially successful directors, and the Coen brothers, who are some of the most acclaimed filmmakers of the last several decades, that should make it a topic of discussion. And the fact that it isn't tells you nearly everything you need to know about the final result. Because Crime Wave is, uh, simply put, a a bit of a mess. Uh, This was my first time ever seeing the movie, and I would really like to say that I viewed it. I saw, like, I watched it this time, and I saw it as this sort of lost, misunderstood masterpiece, but it's not that. (laughs) It's not. So... Uh, had had either of you guys ever seen this before? No, was this it? was my first viewing. You yeah, too, Gary? Same. same. Yeah, yeah, so all three of us is the first time viewing for Crime Wave. Uh, so what did you guys think? Oof. Uh yeah, it's it, it's it's hard to watch. Um no I th- and again, be, I think because Evil Dead is such a, you know, is such a cult is so is so beloved as a cult film and we've we've uh come to expect we've we've set a very high bar in our minds with uh sam raimi uh and the michigan mafia so seeing something like this that has his name on it but you may not realize just how much interference they received from the studio if you if you don't know that this sophomore slump could very easily kill your opinion of Sam Raimi. I, I can see that, but yeah, it, it, it suffers from a lot of things that, you know, I think we've very thoroughly discussed here and that, you know, it doesn't really feel like it knows what it is. It's it, it tries to be, it tries to be so many things that it ends up being not one of anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does have a hard time finding its own identity. I think. Yeah, yeah, I I think this would be great in sort of a midnight, you know, midnight movie. You know, um, they tried to do that part part of that like very limited release. It uh, it actually played at the Waverly Theater in New York, which mm-hmm. was where the Rocky Horror Picture Show played. I was about uh, to say, yeah, double double feature with Rocky Horror. Yeah, I mean, I they they tried to make that happen, and it just never quite caught on. <clears throat> yeah, um, but yeah, that that's that's my thoughts in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm, I'm kind of. I don't know. In the same place, I, I. I can't. I don't think I could recommend it to anybody except like. Uh, you know, completist. completist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh. It's all right. I mean, it's. I don't. I don't think it's as bad as I was waiting for it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering you know, like I knew going in that apparently Sam and the Cohen brothers disowned the movie. You know, yeah. I was like, yeah. all right, well, well this must, it must be. be a disaster. <laughs> right. But watching it, I was like, all right, well, it feels like, it feels like a movie. <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't yep. feel like it was just like completely wrecked, but it does feel like something's missing from it. a little. Well, bit. and you can see the vision. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and the Ramey and the Coens both, 
practically disowning the film, I'm the same way. Like what you said, Gary, you would think that it's some sort of career low, like it's an embarrassment to them. You know? Right. Uh, but it's not, I don't think, I mean, it's, it's neither of their, it's, it's definitely one of the worst films either of their names have been attached to, but it's not like a, a complete disaster. I if mean, this Raimi, is the worst thing you put out, then you're okay. You're right. Yeah. I mean, and, and Raimi can still look at Oz the Great and Powerful for that title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the time of its release, the Coens had never directed a comedy and it, it would be another couple of years until raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came out two years after this, I believe in 87, maybe 88, but they do have an affinity for slapstick as does Raimi. Uh, but while Raimi leans more towards the three Stooges style of slapstick, the Coens brand is more like Preston Sturgis, more classic Hollywood slapstick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two would actually merge their sensibilities a few years later to much more successful results, which I'll, talk about when we get to our further viewing here in a minute but crime wave you know you mentioned that quote gary about the putting on your silly hat yeah crime wave is a deeply silly film i mean it is like a lot of reviewers even the ones who give it you know middling to positive reviews or mixed reviews uh have noted that it is essentially a live action cartoon complete with goofy sound effects i really like the the I really like the goofy sound effects in it personally, uh, especially the scene where Bruce Campbell's talking to the girl at the bar and he goes, pow, and it makes like a sound of a ricocheting <laughs> bullet. Dude, yes. I'm telling you. Like, I love uh, that. I love the one that. Re- the one review of the, uh, that was like a bunch of dialogue and nothing in between or something. It was like Bruce Campbell still has the best shit in this movie. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, where he's, he's sitting the at the bar. In yeah, he's like, I haven't seen you before. I like that in a woman. He is great. He's like, I'm um, gonna, how about we go back to my place for a scotch and sofa? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's honestly a perfect role for Bruce Campbell. I mean, I know that he was supposed to be the lead, but him playing the heel is, I feel like that speaks to his sensibilities a little bit better. Yeah. Than even granted, I, I haven't seen what his take on, um, what's his name Victor would have been but he's pretty perfect as the villain I think he's I think he's the best thing about the movie honestly yeah we've made a lot of comparisons uh to it being cartoony I think there's I think there's a universe where Bruce Campbell is Gaston and yeah and the Beast yeah, like yeah because yeah. like this is got the chin for it exactly this <laughs> this movie his performance here I, I I was trying to think I was like oh who is this guy who is this guy it's Gaston. It's Gaston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Cohen's influence, I think, is most apparent in the film's plot. This uh, murder plot gone awry kind of thing is a regular mm-hmm. occurrence in Cohen Brothers movies. Uh, and everything from Blood Simple, their first movie, to The Man Who Wasn't There, to The Lady Killers. Uh, I mean, even Raising Arizona is a kidnapping gone awry story. I mean, this, the, um, the idea of like somebody getting into a some sort of crime and get get in getting over their head. I mean, that is a vast majority of the Coen brothers filmography nice. really, but visually crime wave is 100% Sam Raimi. Uh, there's <laughs> yeah. that fast sprint down the alley that echoes the four shot from the evil dead. I think they actually pulled it off using the shaky cam the same way they did in the evil dead. Mm. Uh, and that's actually a shot that the Coens would borrow for raising Arizona. Uh, there is a shaky cam shot in Raising Arizona, and it's wonderfully used, but it is 100% a Sam Raimi shot in the middle of a Coen Brothers movie. Then there's POV shots of uh, that are shot like from the perspective of thrown objects, which is a Sam Raimi 
signature kind of thing. Yes. Uh, quite a few like quick zooms into open mouths, which is a very Sam Raimi kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, I mean, we mentioned earlier the, the forks being stabbed into noses, the bowling balls dropped on heads. Uh, there's that scene where the fire escape hits Bruce Campbell and he just like crumples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a cartoon. I mean, this is damn near a three Stooges movie yeah. or at least the closest thing to one that Sam Raimi would ever make. I honestly kind of wish that he had made a three Stooges movie instead of the Pirelli <sighs> brothers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, would have been interesting to see his take on something that he loves so much. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. Good call. That's a that's a, that's an interesting idea. Uh, that that book I was uh, I was looking at excerpts from earlier just so I give it credit is the Coen Brothers Story of Two American Filmmakers. Okay. Uh, it's uh, by Josh Levine, and uh, and the reason I bring it up again is just because here's an excerpt from it. I just want to read that I actually did save because it, it relates to what you're talking about. Uh, he talks about when the the dudes first coming up to go after uh, uh, what's her face in the building, and uh, he says his attempts to get at her including the breaking of the light, crashing his hand through the door. It's nothing more than a crude trial run for blood simples climax. Mm-hmm. So when the exterminator finally captures her and ties her up, she tries to hop away, just like Jerry uh, Lundegaard's wife in Fargo. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the comic <laughs> yeah. sadistic exterminators are cartoon versions of Fargo's hired kidnappers, Carl Showalter and uh, Garrett Grimsred. And the film's basic comic narrative, hired killers who get out of control, contains the seed of Fargo's more realistic more realistic one uh the long comic chase scene in the xyz murder shows the origins of the action sequence in raising arizona and there's a jitterbug dance that it's very similar to the uso dance in barton fink and there's the hapless hero vic hanging desperately off a bridge afraid of plunging to his doom he seems to be an early version of the norval barnes who uh, who ends up hanging out the window of the hudsucker building in fact the story telling strategy of this movie uh a man who may be about to die has a story told in a flashback before he is rescued at the last moment will be duplicated somewhat more artfully in the Hudsucker proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He said the film also happens to have uh, appears to have influenced Barry Sonnenfeld, which you'll remember. I, I think I mentioned this in the evil dead where about Sam Raimi being in New York and going to the dinner and like Barry Sonnenfeld was hanging mm-hmm. out with them and stuff. He said, uh, his, it appears to have influenced Barry Sonnenfeld, who didn't even work on it. Years later, when he directed Men in Black, he would have the evil alien drive around an exterminator truck that looked a yeah. lot like the one of the XYZ murder. It does. Oh my God. It does. Yeah. It's got, the big, it's got the big bug on top of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I thought that was interesting. That's but... pretty wow. fun, man. That, honestly, like all this talk of the Coen brothers just makes me want to do a Coen brothers series so bad because they are probably <laughs> my, they might be my favorite working filmmakers. Uh, I just, I adore their stuff and I know that not everyone does. I mean, uh, I know that we've got some friends like in our discord and stuff like that, that the Coen brother stuff just doesn't vibe with them. Uh, but they are, I adore their filmography, almost all of them. You mentioned too. Um, I remember another story I saw what, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that the Sam Raimi, uh, talking about how disappointing he was, they cut out the whole sewer sequence that he had in mm-hmm. the movie and a chase through there. Yeah. And, uh, Reed Bernie was talking in uh, his interview on the Shout Factory Blu-ray, uh, and he said, he, he was like, I remember, he's like, I think I mentioned this before, but he said that, you know, it felt good. Like, I felt like this could be great. And then it just took so long afterwards and all the editing and they cut out everything. And when I saw it, they cut out the whole sewer sequence. And I thought that was beautifully shot. But he was like, if you're curious, he's like, one day I was flying, I was on a plane and I caught uh, Spider-Man 2 
and there is a sewer sequence in Spider-Man 2, and it is exactly the sewer sequence from this movie. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He was Love like, it that. is exactly the same thing. That's great. <laughs> Raimi did it. <laughs> I mean, when we were talking about the, uh, you know, the visual style of Crime Wave, uh, I would argue, and, and this is kind of the same point that Bruce Campbell makes the interview that you, you mentioned, Gary, uh, that the kinetic energy of the shots in Crime Wave are closer to Raimi's sensibilities uh, than the first Evil Dead movie. Uh, now, he would use that kind of goofball energy to even greater effect, I think, in the Evil Dead 2. Crime Wave almost feels like a missing link between the two Evil Dead movies. You know, Evil Dead 2 feels like a combination of the dark subject matter and gore of the first Evil Dead with the kind of cartooniness of Crime Wave. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, it yeah. makes perfect sense. Like, if you're wondering how the guy who makes Evil Dead, I mean, obviously, there's some, like, hits at it in Evil Dead for what Evil Dead 2 is going to be, but... It, it is easy to see how Evil Dead 2 happens. Yeah, yeah. Once, and, 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 you know, that was always an interesting thing to me, like the difference between the two, which obviously we're going to discuss a lot more <laughs> when, we, when we get to that. But watching this, I'm like, oh, it wasn't just like he just jumped into doing a, a Tex Avery cartoon in the Evil Dead 2. Like he had a almost like a dry run with that style in Crime Wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah, like they're right. like, we're gonna have to do horror, but we'll do horror our way. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> do it exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. Uh, before I forget to mention it too, I, I meant to say this earlier, but like, uh, Vic, uh, these are stupid little tidbits, little fun facts for you. My wife says I'm like Paul Blart sometimes, and so I say, like, <laughs> fun, fun fact facts. for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Vic yells, Tally Ho. Uh, when he's jumping from car to car, that's a that's a running Sam Raimi gag. Apparently, he does it in like he's going to do it in Army of Darkness and in Spider Man, like uh, <laughs> jumping off something and saying "Tally Ho." It's uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, such a goofy old fashioned thing. To do. <laughs> yeah. It is. I think it's remember one... Sam Raimi. You know, we mentioned this in our last episode, but Sam Raimi grew up watching old old movies and stuff on TV, yeah. like stuff that. So he he almost is a man out of time because he grew up on stuff that was made like way before he was born and that's like what formed his sensibilities yeah that's why i wanted to mention it just sort of little stupid things to look for but like uh there's even a joke in this one where uh vic asks, asks nancy uh you want to have lunch some evening um that's from <laughs> that's in spider-man like peter it- asked mary james <laughs> if you want to have lunch some i evening. love that that's great i love that well, it, it, you know, in Crime Wave, I think that some of the biggest issues with the film, and it's got a, it's got a lot, but uh, there, I think the biggest issues are twofold. At least the one, those that can be laid at Raimi's feet, or the, excuse me, those that can't be laid at Raimi's feet. First is the editing of the film just doesn't work to me. Uh, as we discussed, Raimi had the film taken away from him in the editing suite. There were, I think, three different editors involved in this. Uh, so the choices made were not Raimi's choices. Uh, there's just something about the way that the gags are edited together that feels kind of clunky to me, as if the editor just didn't quite understand the rhythm that Raimi was shooting for. Like the editor didn't understand what type of movie this was supposed to be because editing together comedy stuff especially like slapstick stuff, like physical comedy stuff, like what Raimi is going for here takes somebody with a very specific, a a very particular set of skills. Oh yeah. You know, absolutely. And whoever ended up editing the majority of the final product 
did not have those skills. Yeah, it's it's a real bummer to to think about. I, I almost I I know it's it's just like pipe dream we're talking about here, but like it's just thinking about a show or, or a movie called Relentless where Sam Raimi gets to tell this story or something yeah. again. Like I just think I, I wish he could reclaim this, like turn oh, yeah. it into something yeah. because it 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 does. I mean, I guess everything happens for a reason. All that all that jazz, but like it's like Sam they they took this as an opportunity to grow from it they learned about hollywood they're yeah. better people for I mean, it. things it, it, turned out okay for them yeah, yeah. And the i end. was gonna say and and, and and you know you could obviously say that with like the amount of money they made or anything but like i i feel like everything i found with bruce campbell because you know like you said before sam doesn't talk about it that much at least that i can find but like uh i mean on that that shout factory blu-ray he is nowhere to be found Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But like Bruce is Bruce is all over. He'll talk about it. Bruce and, talk about uh, anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he but he talks about it for like as as shitty as some of the stories sound. Like Bruce talks about it like a man who is older and you know wiser and and just and like, viewing it as a learning experience. Yeah, and just yeah. like this is a thing that that had to happen, and this mm-hmm. is this is why it happened. Even you know, like I said, giving benefit of the doubt to like the guy that's sitting across from them telling you we're only bringing two people over. He's like, this is a guy that worked for a bunch of other guys that it's just rolling downhill. They had like, bosses. What the fuck's going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's trying to tell us and we're like, fuck you, dude. That's a very like gracious perspective, I think on his part. Yeah. And it's probably a lot easier for him to see, you know, 35 years later or whatever, when that interview, I was going to say some of that probably came with time. Yeah. And but he's yeah. and he's and he's dealt with a lot of other uh, studio bullshit since. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, this? he he is definitely a guy who has perspective in that way. He tells the story in the commentary, and I don't remember the guy's name, but he was a PA on the on the movie and talks about how you know he remembered he and Sam saying like, "You got to go pick up this film from this place. Don't come back without it. <laughs> like you you can't." And uh so the PA went and I guess he didn't have enough money or something. So he sold his leather jacket to like get the money to go get the film out of the wow. place and bring oh. it back to them. And he was like, he's like, we never forgot that. Sam just bought him a new leather jacket. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just like, a, he was like, and he remembered the guy's name. He's like, wherever you are right now. He's like, God bless you. Nobody works as hard as you. He was like, that's still like, he was like, I remember he's like, I'll never forget that. And that's just, awesome. Yeah. Well, I think the other issue in the film, in, in my opinion, aside from the the editing, which again just just does not work, because the thing about the editing is that you can see how these scenes could be edited together in a much more a way that flows better. It's more kinetic; it bounces from one gag to another a little bit better because we've seen it done in other films, and it's just clunky. Yeah, uh, to use that word again. But the other issue, I think, and also a little clunky, is in a lot of the casting. Uh, I think almost every character in this is uh, is kind of miscast, aside from Bruce Campbell, who mm. I think is great. Although I, again, I would love to see his take on Victor. Um, I think Brian James and Paul Paul L. Smith do a fine job as the villains, though I do think that James uh, is almost too cartoonish. And I think that stupid laugh and that stupid voice of his gets old very quickly. Mm. Um, and Reed Bernie as Victor is just a bore in the role <laughs> to me. Man. I just I just don't think that he has the comedic ability to play a character in a movie that's this goofy. You know, I think yeah. that they need somebody who has more of a, a 
a background in some sort of slapstick comedy. And to me, he just does not work. I think he he comes across as a guy who is going for something more. Uh, he's playing Jerry Lewis. Yeah, what he's doing. Yeah. Well, oh, but, my but, uh, God. Yeah. Really <laughs> I was is. trying to think. I was just like, mm, he's doing a Jerry Lewis this? thing is yeah. what, it, what it seems like to me. Well, the Campbell in the, the, the commentary again, I keep referencing it, but he, he's talking about Reed Birdie and he was like, he was a sweetheart. He was, you know, he did his best and like he was working and he was like, and then he went through like a drought for like his career for like 30 years. And he's like, but he's like, I'm catching up with him now. He's apparently got, you know, whatever this was taped, you know, he was just like, he's apparently the toast of uh, Broadway. He's doing theater stuff and uh, good for him. He's like, I don't He's like, he survived for however long he did. However actors do. He's like, I don't, you know, know why he didn't get work. Probably because we killed his career, but the, <laughs> he was on house of cards there for a little while yeah, on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, and he popped up in that movie, the hunt that, ca- that came out a couple years ago. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Good. Really good movie. Yeah. But yeah. So he, he's still getting work, but I think he does mostly do stage stuff. Yeah. And th- that's what I originally was going to say. It looks like he, he, he talks about like when he got the call, you know, it was like he was he was doing more serious roles and and that kind of thing and and somebody whoever it was that called him about the the situation like we need you to go tomorrow to Detroit and read mm-hmm. for this part and he was just like and they said it's like it's with this guy Sam Raimi he just had some success with the Evil Dead and he was like I don't know that sounds not like me that sounds gory and they're <laughs> like that's the lead role you gotta do it he's like all right fine so that was the reason he went and. Anyway, so maybe he he, I, he was probably out of place a little bit on this one. Yeah, maybe, and maybe he just was ill-equipped because he did he didn't have a lot of prep time on it. So maybe that was part of it. But to me, like, it's not that he's a bad actor. I just don't think he fits the role. Yeah, you know, I don't think that he's playing it quite the way that a movie of this type needs for that lead role. I think when I think of a role like that, honestly, I think of George Clooney in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. That is the perfect slapstick lead role. Yeah. Uh, which again, one. very Preston Sturgis. I mean, oh brother, where art thou is actually a reference to a Preston Sturgis movie. The Cohen brothers get the slapstick very, very well. They're very good at it. They want, Raising Arizona is my favorite comedy of all time. It's because they're so good at slapstick. Well, since I mentioned Raising Arizona, and we've mentioned a lot of other movies in the course of this that we we kind of uh are, are similar or, or we've referenced or are made by these filmmakers. What would you guys do if you were doing a double feature with Crime Wave? If you were uh, pairing this with another film, what film would that be? Well, you led right into it perfectly. I got this one. Uh, I read somewhere where somebody, this is just interesting. Somebody had said Weekend at Birdies, which was funny to me. I was like, that's, I would not have ever called that. But that's interesting. But Weekend I read Birdies. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, got him. Uh, the, no, but, the other day at our Discord, we saw a uh, article about the announcement of a, a remake of this movie coming out pretty soon, or the being in production or going into production. And I, it hit me. I was like, "Oh, this would work with that one." And it's the Naked Gun. I would yeah. put the Naked Gun with this movie. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I uh, I was looking at kind of you know the noir aspect and with the like really very cartoony at times um, characteristics of the film and it jumped out at me. I was just kind of like, this has some Roger Rabbit vibes. Uh, oh yeah. Like, I mean, Roger Rabbit's very film, film noir 
yeah inspired obviously yeah and then i was trying to think it was like well okay those those two are kind of in the same vein but uh then i also thought of possibly um ernest goes to jail <laughs> i was like i mean really for me you could pair ernest with anything yeah honestly so yeah, I think yeah even, sure. even if it doesn't make sense evil dead and ernest scared stupid yeah why not they're I'm both in. horror movies I'm yeah I'm give it to me <laughs> so i was uh, like i would i would i would pay money to go to that double feature i would die yeah. for ernest honestly wait <laughs> <laughs> leave it to justin to take it a little too far <laughs> Leave it to me to take it a little too far. <laughs> I know. For... It's not funny, Justin. <laughs> Suicide's not funny. I didn't say I would kill myself for Ernest. I'm you like, I would, you would a, die for him. I would take a bullet for him. If Jim Although he's Var- dead, which would be pointless. If the spirit of Jim Varney uh, approached you and said, I need you to kill yourself, would you? <laughs> I don't think I would go that far. No, no, no. Because I'm not, because there's no bigger picture at play. Okay. Yeah. Well, and for we, my further, and we view, would lose, and we would lose one hell of a film historian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for my further viewing, I'm going to go kind of an obvious route and say the Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, it's the sense. only other movie that has a credit of both the Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi as the writers. Uh, but it's also it's set in the 40s, whereas this movie feels like it's set in the 40s. Set in the 40s. Uh, it's very madcap, very, uh, very slapstick. Uh, Sam Raimi is in it. He has a cameo. And Sam Raimi also directs a sequence in the Hudsucker Proxy, which is genuinely one of the best things that Sam Raimi has ever directed is oh, the wow. is the sequence that he directs in the Hudsucker Proxy. If you've ever seen the have either of you guys ever seen the Hudsucker Proxy? It's no. been forever, but I've seen it. I've never so, seen um, it. So it's a I love it. It is it was a box office bomb. It was one of the it was the biggest budget movie that the Coen brothers had done at the time. Uh didn't do very well at the box office, but I think it's highly underrated. It's not my favorite film of theirs, but it is a it is a really fun one. But there's a sequence in it where so basically the movie's about Tim Robbins' character uh, inventing the hula hoop and rising through the corporate ranks as a result. But there's a sequence where they uh, they unveil the hula hoop. It go. They show the. They show it being built. They show it being, uh, the, you know, the this corporation having meetings to find a name for it uh, and all that. And then finally, it going out into the market. And finally, you know, it's not doing very well. But then one kid finds one and like starts using it as a hula hoop, you know, and all these other kids are around. It's very cartoonish, mm. uh, but Sam Raimi shot that entire montage and it's filled with Sam Raimi, like energy. Nice. <laughs> it really nice. is. Uh, it's really fun. It's, it's the best sequence in the whole movie. Honestly, as much as I love the Coen brothers, Sam Raimi directed the best part of the Hudsucker proxy. Nice. nice. And it's just, it feels like this movie, but done better. Hmm. It feels like what it feels like what Raimi was trying to do with Crime Wave, but the the Cohen brothers pulled it off. Well, it sounds like they had less interference. I don't know. I was going to say it feels like it sounds like from some of the stuff we read that that like it it these guys get get they do get back with a lot of the stuff. Like they they end up they're like we're going to throw this shit in other movies. Then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll eventually just like redo all of Crime Wave and like uh, in the span of our. Uh, uh, films like yeah, we'll, we'll just, just remake we'll... it one scene at a time, <laughs> right? We'll throw, <laughs> we'll throw stuff in there. Well, Crime Wave is a uh, certainly a compromised film. 
not a single person involved in its creation would argue that point, I don't think. Uh, but to me, I think it is hard to hate it despite its flaws because it's still filled with personality. It's very clearly the work of young filmmakers who are trying to find their voices. Uh, I can't remember where I read it, but one writer that I read uh, likened it to someone being given the budget for bigger, better tools, but they're still kind of learning how to use those tools. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Yeah. I mean, this movie might be a mess, but it's anything but boring. And I'll take a big, interesting swing and a miss any day over a cookie-cutter, well-polished film. Uh, though I would be over the moon if Ramey were to ever revisit this film and give us a director's cut. I want to see that sewer sequence. Uh, just recut it. I, I don't know if... I, I wonder if there's a cut out there that he, you know, his original intention or if he would have to do it from memory but that's been done before but i would love for sam raimi to finally acknowledge this film and go back and give us the version of this movie that he intended granted he can't put bruce campbell in the lead role but other than that if he could re-edit it uh and like you know like the, the skylight sequence that we mentioned that they chopped up that was one continuous shot you know just and rename it the xyz murders that's what i would do Rename the X, yeah. kind of like how almost famous, uh, you know, the director's cut was retitled un, untitled, uh, which was what Cameron Crowe originally wanted to call it. But if Raimi were to do that with this and do a director's cut of Crime Wave as the XYZ murders and show it the way that he wanted it to be, maybe get Joe uh, Laduca to come in and do the whole score as they Joe, originally Joe Maybe get Jolo to come in and do the whole score <laughs> as they had originally <laughs> intended it. <laughs> a relentless. Yeah, Relentless is the behind-the-scenes story. The XYZ Murders is the director's cut. And okay, fair. Be, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So you could you could you could mix Somebody those together us. if it's a if it's like an HBO series or something. You can mix those together. It's the Relentless is about them filming a movie called the XYZ Murders. There you go. And then you release the director's cut of the XYZ Murders in uh, as as like a, a companion piece. Yeah, there you go. So, hey, the somebody call cut. us yeah uh, tweet God. us at cinema underscore shock uh we'll go on we'll come on as producers we're so just... good at talking about things <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> that's all we're good at <laughs> not not doing them yeah, we'll, but, we'll just but, we'll talk it up we'll give you ideas <laughs> well he may be dismissive of the film and and rightfully so honestly but Ramy's career may not have looked the same if it had not been for crime wave uh, i don't think crime wave is some sort of essential viewing for either Raimi or Cohen fans. Uh, Gary, you even mentioned before that it's, you know, it's is only something you would really recommend to like a completist for either of them. Right. But I do think it's an important piece of their careers, if only to see how they would use the lessons that they learned here as they moved forward. Uh, the Coens, for instance, would actually, after this would never let anyone else direct or uh, direct another one of their scripts, not until 2012. Wow. That's uh, uh, if you're if you're doing the math, that's almost 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they've had a couple here and there where they've let somebody else direct since then, mm. or they've done rewrites and other people's uh, scripts, et cetera. But uh, between 1985 and 2012, if there was a Coen Brothers script, nobody was touching it with the Coen Brothers. Nice. It's a uh, it's it's one of those things that like and we could talk about this in the mini episode or something a little bit more. But with the film trace guys, uh, one of the best compliments uh, I think we've got and, uh, and and you guys will hear it when the episodes come out. But while we're filming, you know, they 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 briefly overview like certain plot points. So they talk more about the movie than we do, like as far as story wise and mm -hmm. uh, what's mm -hmm. what's going on. And 
but they uh you know uh, they were like i've been listening and they were talking about the james cameron series and and that sort of thing and i was like yeah i know i know it's a lot because we we go long talk about a lot and uh all that stuff but they were saying uh you know they they said somebody's got to do that they were like that's there's there's a lot of movie podcasts out there and they were like and they said we feel like we're getting a phd in a director like when nice. we're listening to your show <laughs> <Love> <laughs> and, nice. and i and i thought i was like that's kind of cool actually that's and funny. so when you were talking about uh this movie as far as you know like as a completist it's like yeah it's like if you were if you want to understand this artist mm-hmm. then this is this is where you can't you, ignore it yeah you can't ignore you can't this ignore movie. it even yeah. though Ramey ignores it, but, yeah. he, but he still learned <laughs> he's from a, it. He's allowed. <laughs> he still learned from it and he still took lessons from it that he took, wh- whether it be like what not to do, that's still mm-hmm. a lesson, you know? Yeah. Uh, like, like Bruce Campbell said, this is, this was their, them learning how to fail, which is an important lesson as you grow. Yeah. Especially as you grow as an artist. Oh, for uh, sure. Learn what not to do how, and how to, and how to do it better. So it is an important piece of their career. So we we originally like were questioning whether or not to even discuss Crime Wave because it's such a lesser known film. But you guys actually convinced me, I think, to go ahead and tackle it because it did feel like something that we we shouldn't just ignore. And I'm glad we didn't because I do think that this is an essential part of Sam Raimi's story. Well, like you said, I mean, it fits perfectly like in the middle between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, if nothing right. else, like you can get that out of it. But but I, I do think it really helps to I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to say, like, I don't think I understood Sam Raimi as much as I do now since doing Evil Dead in this movie. Yeah. Like, I knew that he was goofy. Like, I knew that there were goofy things, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I ever got like how different he was as a director and of course i would think of sam raimi as a horror director but that's not again what he set out to do and it's not you know he's mastered it he's mastered his own style of it mm-hmm. but uh i think this the the more we talk about it, the more i'm like yeah this is important this is this is important for that because i, I think i have like such a great understanding of this guy's brain now uh, just from these two his movies. influences and you know yeah, yeah. and it's just yeah, like this much. is the kind of stuff this guy's into and so everything else makes sense yeah, <laughs> yeah. well all those lessons that he learned on this uh, you know that the next film that he's going to make would be in part of a result of those lessons and a result of the way that this movie was handled the way that its release was handled the way that it was uh received he took all of that into his next film uh and for his next film he was heading back to the genre and the film that had gotten him noticed in the first place uh though he would not leave the looney tune style of crime wave behind uh, of course we are talking about uh the second film in the evil dead franchise for his next film he is going to get the band back together for evil dead 2 nice So join us next week for that episode, or in two weeks, rather, for that episode. Uh, If you want to watch it, you can find it online streaming. Uh, Head to, uh, we. I use Just Watch to find out where things are streaming, but I think the Evil Dead 2 is pretty easy to find, although it was brought to my attention that Evil Dead 1 is not streaming anywhere, apparently, (laughs) which is really bizarre to me. That did come up on the Discord. I didn't know either. Not even on Shudder? No. 
Huh. Not, not not as of this recording. I'm not saying that it hasn't been there before or won't be there in the future, but as of right now, it is not. It's actually an example oh, wow. of one of those things that uh, I have it on Vudu. Like I, yeah. I can watch it on Vudu, but it's not like you can't search and watch it on Vudu. Yeah. E- mm-hmm. Evil Dead 2 is a little bit easier. I just pulled it up on just watching. It's available to stream uh, or, or at least like rent or buy. Um, on all the major platforms, so it's a lot easier to find. I'm not sure why that first one isn't, though. It's very you know strange. what? It's a great movie, so you should just get it. You honestly should just own Evil Dead. Uh, you can get like the 4K double feature of Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 for like 15 bucks. It's like very inexpensive. Wow. If you're feeling or, or wild, I mean, that group- the, but but the the 4K is coming out soon. Uh, the double feature of both. Nice. Yeah, I was gonna say if you're feeling wild, I mean that uh, the groovy set. I ended the up groovy collection is awesome. The groovy collection, it's cool, and it comes with all three seasons of Ash versus Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Doesn't come with Army of Darkness though. Doesn't but, have Army of Darkness. That's a bummer. But I was Shout Factory say, just released that on 4K, and I, I I picked up the Steel Book, and I can't wait to dive into it. Mm-hmm. I I did the Blu-ray for that sale that they had. I ended up getting it, and um, but the what was I going to say? Oh, the, the groovy collection. Um, I think you can get it used for like 30 to 40 bucks. Right yeah. I mean, now. brand new. I think I got it for like 55 and it's both movies on 4k and Blu-ray special features and all three seasons of Ash versus evil dead. It's pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a really good deal. It is a good deal. Well guys, I guess that's it for today. That's it for crime wave. Uh, where can you fellas be found on the internet for our listeners to follow? I am at, this is Gary Horn. Uh, and that also, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and that also is where I can be found. <laughs> uh, you can also, I mean, if you're interested and you want to so- show some support uh, to the National Wrestling Alliance, if you're not into wrestling, now's the time to get into it at NWA. We got a pay-per-view coming up November 12th. So it's a good time to jump in. Follow the National Wrestling Alliance. You can watch. Those episodes of NWA Power and NWA USA, they're both free on YouTube. Uh, New episodes every Friday at 6.05 of NWA Power. NWA USA is every Saturday at noon. Of course, it's YouTube, so uh, you can also just watch them whenever the fuck you want. Whenever you want. (laughs) (laughs) So you can do that and uh, show some support, show some love. Watch the NWA, and uh, also I have a wrestling thing, but uh, Todd put it in my notes to talk about it, but I haven't done anything with it for a few weeks. So, at TIPW Show. This is pro wrestling. <laughs> this is pro wrestling. Uh, yeah, if you uh, if you like Star Trek, uh, please uh, join us for Computer Resume Podcast. It is the show chrono- uh, chronologically covering the entire Star Trek franchise. Actually just had Justin Bishop and Gary Horn on to talk about Duncan Jones Moon, uh, the episode that I will be recording. It's not Star Trek, by the way. It is not Star Trek. All of our listeners are confused. (laughs) Is it? Mm. It is. Well, you'll have you'll have to listen to the episode and find out. (laughs) That's Um, a good point. We do talk about it. Yeah, and the episode that I am recording tomorrow uh, with uh, my good friend Jerry Antimano from the Four Quadrants podcast. We will actually be covering season one episode one of doctor who so if you couldn't see todd did quote fingers when he said friend (laughs) oh come on (laughs) no i love jerry jerry's a good guy he's 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 one of our biggest fans and i'm a big fan of his but yeah if you're uh if you're down please come check us out it's 
uh, available wherever you get your podcasts on all of the socials at Computer Resume. And you can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. You can find me at Justin underscore Bishop. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, which is probably where I am the most active. Find the podcast at cinema underscore shock. Uh, all those same places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're also at cinemashock.net. You can find links to all of our episodes. You can find links to our merchandise, You can, which, by the way, there's a fall sale coming up. So you can Ooh. get some of that merchandise discounted. And you can find links to our Discord and all that kinds of stuff at cinemashock.net. Until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny, you've done some bad things. And I'm going to deal out some swift keys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <man. laughs> I like it. <laughs>